So I'd say one of the one of the things where I just think is is an absolute and just out it's an outrage in our system. I really do is that we we grade schools inadequate, including their leaders and teachers in them. And um, I, I just think that, that the fact that we even use that language about people and schools is a, is, a, is an is an atrocity. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 19 of the Rethinking Education podcast. Tom Sherrington is one of those guests who probably needs no introduction, but in case his prolific output has somehow passed you by these last few years, here's a quick one. A former teacher and school leader with over 30 years' experience, more recently, Tom has become a hugely popular blogger, author, and training provider. His blog, Teacherhead, has had approaching 7 million hits, and his recent publications, Rosenshine's Principles in Action and the Teaching Walkthrough series, co-authored with Oliver Caviglioli, are pretty much permanent fixtures at the top of the educational book charts. Here are a few excerpts from reviews that people have written about Tom's previous book, The Learning Rainforest, in which he sets out his philosophy for teaching and learning. Jeff Barton, the General Secretary of the Association for School and College Leaders, wrote, In the time that I have known Tom Sherrington, I've learned so much about pedagogy and classroom practice from his blogs and tweets. Now it's a real treat to have a compendium of his experience, wisdom and insights, all rooted in such an optimistic view about why great teaching matters. This is an indispensable book for classroom practitioners at all stages of their career. Peter Hyman, the executive head teacher of School 21, wrote, This book is a huge leap forward in transcending the sterile debates between traditionalists and progressives. Hacking through the undergrowth of academic research and passing fads, Tom takes his readers on a journey through the rainforest to the sunny uplands of classrooms in which powerful learning and rich experiences can flourish. Whether you agree with every word here is not the point. This is a book that will get you thinking, reflecting, changing the way you teach and questioning the very essence of effective teaching. And Deborah Kidd, the guest on episode one of the Rethinking Education podcast, wrote, Teachers have been thrashed by changing tides of policy and ideology for decades. They have been bamboozled and confused by consultants and theories trying to shape them into this fad and that. They are tired, and what they need is a light, a sensible, balanced, well-informed light. Tom's book is that light for many teachers, especially those in the secondary sector. It offers a way through the arguments and debates that sometimes polarise education, and in a clear, intelligent and open way, offers practical and thoughtful solutions. Much of this richness comes through in this conversation, which I think that you will really enjoy. In the first part of this conversation, you may notice that there are a few minor glitches due to faltering bandwidth. I've done my best to edit these out, but some of them are kept in, A, because you can hear what's being said, and B, because it's interesting stuff. Anyway, whenever it happens, it's a short-lived problem, so please do not adjust your set. I really enjoyed this wide-ranging and at times quite emotive conversation with Tom, in which, among other things, we discussed Rosenshine's principles of instruction, 
the importance of effective behavior management systems, and why we need to stop grading schools. I hope you enjoy the show. Tom Sherrington, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this for for a while. Great for to be to be on the show with you. Yeah, yeah, it's great. To, I'm looking forward to it too, uh, and and appreciate it especially because I understand that you got up super early today to do a talk. Were you doing a talk in Thailand? Were you? Well, it's for a, a organisation called Fabicia, which is a British international schools in Asia, and they have a conference. So yeah, I did a keynote for them, and then I did two um, one hour workshops one was on instructional coaching and one was on rosenshine's principles so it's the whole thing was yeah four four thirty a.m for me was the first time so i've been up for hours wow and it's only so it's only 10 a.m total respect to you there if I, if I was you i'd be straight back into bed so it seems that you might have some uh some virtual jet lag which uh which might make for an interesting conversation let's see um so so a while ago you were on a really interesting episode of Ollie Lovell's podcast the E triple R um as i'm sure you remember um which was about the most important thing wasn't it it was like what's the most important thing about behavior about curriculum about assessment pedagogy and so on um and i, I really recommend to listeners to check that out if they haven't done it all already um in the rethinking education podcast i like to explore different territory as the name would suggest um first of all i really like to get to know the person that i'm talking to who are you what was your own experience of education what key moments have shaped your thinking along the way you know why is it that you think what you think and why do you do what you do and then we get into the to the rethinking education part of the conversation where we think about you know what do you see that's really good what are the major challenges that we think we face currently and how might we overcome those challenges? So we'll get into all of that. Um, but I think I'd like to start with the fact that you have become something of a publishing phenomenon in recent years, or at least part of a publishing phenomenon. I know there are some <laughs> there's some other people involved in this. So I saw you t- posted something on Twitter recently, which was about how I think you, I think you shared your first ever little mini sort of post that you that you wrote. Was it when you were at Kegs at, at King Edward Grammar School? Is that right? Yeah. And so, and, and you said something, you'd written something like n- almost a thousand blogs since then in the last sort of, is that yeah, right? Seven, that's just over 700 right. in, in, nine, in nine years. That's, that's about the scale of it, yeah. Right. What's that, what does that work out at in frequency? 700 in nine years. It's, it's almost 100 a year, isn't it? So it's like two a week-ish. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it varies. I mean, er, earlier on, I was writing a few more sort of very short ones. And more recently, it's been sort of, 60 70 a year um but yeah it's 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 that it's that sort of scale it's about it's about the one, one a bit more than once a week really and and the, the statistics are phenomenal aren't they so your blog i was looking at it earlier this morning it's had something like 6.7 million hits um you've got like about 120,000 subscribers which is quite a phenomenal thing um and so you know, like was this the, when you when you first wrote that pe- that short piece nine years ago? There was a picture of Vic Reeves alongside it. Or something. I don't know if that <laughs> yeah. was like an in joke or something. But um, like, was that the first time that you had written? Was this your first exercise in writing, or you had you done anything before that? Well, I it, I had this idea when I was a, a teacher. Well, actually, when I was 
a head teacher at that school where I, I felt like I had some things to share. Ha- having gone to a, a grammar school uh, and always felt that it was a kind of alien world. And actually, I, I felt I had this message that there's something about the culture there which was very ch- challenging, which I felt had been absent from the comprehensive schools I'd worked in before. And I was thinking, I know we, I mean, we can slag off selective education and say it's wrong and our principle, which I, I, I'd probably agree with, actually. But the truth is that the students there had this incredible experience. And I, and I, and I felt like there was something to share. So I tried to write that. And I sent an article to the TES, which they rejected. And they just said, um, just do a blog or something. <laughs> and I didn't know what that meant. And then I, I went on a course. I didn't, I, I didn't know. What, I thought, how would anyone ever read it if I just wrote a blog? But then I went on um, a course uh, for Essex head teachers, where a guy called Alan November was was talking, and he was a sort of American kind of ed tech guru kind of person. And he was saying that children should do blogging because they have a public audience and it helps them really focus. They they have a sort of motivational aspect to it, but also it means they step up and write more fluidly and, and, and at greater length. And I thought that would be interesting for my students. So I thought, well, if they're going to do it, I'm going to see what it what's involved. So I just dabble. So I set up a WordPress thing and thought, well, I'll have a go and see what happens when you do a blog. And that's what started. The, the students were writing a student newspaper, and um, which I had helped them set up. And one of the things they did was a kind of Mickey take of me pontificating about education. And they used Vic Reeve as the kind of uh, symbol of that, because they just thought I, they, I reminded them of him. And so they would take the Mickey very cleverly of the kind of edgy jargon that they heard me say and stuff. It was very funny. So that was one of my first blogs was just sharing them. And I was quite proud of that because actually at the time, this is one of the things that I did there was I wanted to see how far you could go with student ownership of a newspaper. And I established the protocol that the student newspaper was totally uncensored and it was published without any teacher's scrutiny. Wow. And we did it because we we appointed editors and we had this relationship where we'd say, so you're the editor and there's this trust thing and you print what you want, but you know there's a responsibility that that carries. And so you have to own it. You know, you have to... So we... we so we did, and, and that was an important part of the selection process for who was the editor that they had to be able to carry the trust. But it meant that every time the newspaper came out, it was like, "Oh God, what have they said?" <laughs> and I loved that. I, it was kind of risky kind of thing, but it was great. I, I thought it was really high quality as well. They had a student there. This is a bit <laughs> sidetracking. One of the students um, wrote about sport, um, and he was called George Cox. That was his name. And 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 his, so his his column was called Cox on Ball, Cox and Balls. <laughs> And you just think, well, that is his name. <laughs> so you think, well, he got away with that because that's actually his name. But there was all sorts of funny stuff, and it. it was very, very amusing. But anyway, so that was the, that was my first effort. And then Twitter was kind of also. I was thinking, well, what's Twitter, and how can I use it? And I realised that that one link to the other, I could share a blog on Twitter, and um, you know, that's that's where it all began. I, I was uh, the session was I was sitting next to Vic Goddard, who's the head teacher at. Um, yeah. In Passmore's, and he, we were sort of setting up our our Twitter. He had loads of followers because he he was famous. He'd been on the telly, and everything. yeah, yeah. He, he tweeted me saying, "Oi, mate, I'm your fiftieth follower." I was like, "Yeah, get in." I, I remember showing my son Vic Goddard off the telly as my fiftieth follower. <laughs> it was great, you know that, and that's kind of where it started. And then you, I wrote something which actually was about marking or something. People read it. I was like, "Oh my god, people actually read this stuff." <laughs> So it was really, that's how it started. And once people start reading what you write, you think, well, I'll do it again. 
Right. So, so it seemed to take off quite quickly because some people talk about like writing into the void for a bit at first and they like had sort of 10 trusty followers, but you sort of, so you, it seemed to spark something quite, quite early on. Yeah, it did. And I remember uh, meeting Alex Quigley at a SSAT event in 2012. We often talk about this. We sat together and we'd, we, we only knew each other through Twitter and we just just met, sort of gravitated towards each other and said, hi, you're Alex, I'm your Tom. And we, we talked about our blogging experience and uh, we had about 20,000 views all together on our blogs each and we were sort of close. And now, you know, that that's, I get sort of 20,000 views in a week with, with the volume of, of blogs that are on there. People are reading lots of old ones as well as new ones. But to, be, to begin with, you're sort of grateful that anyone is reading it. And that was part of it, this community feeling. So that right early on, I was, you know, I met, he encountered someone like David Didow and um, and Alex were writing John Tomset. These are people who I know now. And we were all sort of starting to write blogs around the same time. David was obviously one of the first people that, and you realize you're part of a network of people who are trying to express their ideas through blogging. And, it, and that, that's that's a, a big part of it, actually, that sharing and that exchanging of ideas through writing a bit more than you might normally say on a tweet or something. And that, that that's a, the big motivation for me is that you're part of the network of people who are not just by yourself. Yeah, yeah. And it was an exciting time, wasn't it? it was, there was something about that period of time, like like that, that whole phenomenon. Now it's sort of quite normal. But like when you first ever sort of met someone off Twitter in real life, you're like, oh, wow, it's sort of, there's something slightly surreal about it. Um, but also it was quite interesting that like lots of those, lots of those people, you know, you mentioned uh, David Didow, um, uh, <clears throat> you know, lots of the ideas that were being expressed around that time were sort of like people were changing their minds about things th- through this process, wasn't it? It wasn't just that people were just saying what they thought. There was like this sort of transformation that was happening partly through this network of bloggers. Was, was that, is that what your experience was? Yes, definitely. And and because you have a record of it, you can kind of tell. So I, when I look back at some of my old blogs, I think, gosh, I used to say that sort of thing. And I was slightly dazzled by some things which I realised I could do at, um, at kegs in the grammar school world, which I which I actually are just harder to do in, in other contexts. So even the way that I was sort of promoting ideas, I realised was not particularly helpful, even though they can exist in the world of education. They're not necessarily transferable. And so I, I think the way I've re- used to express ideas has changed and definitely made me think. And you get some comments, some kickback, and it doesn't make you think, well, when someone challenges you, you think, God, do I really believe that? And then and sometimes you think, no, I really do. And other times it makes you think, well, I remember one time, one of the, one of the comments which I, um, I, I had was, was um, from uh, Greg Ashman, who at the time I didn't know his name because he was kind of anonymous at that point. He, he wrote on a blog. Well, I, I used to do this thing called co-construction, which I, for me was one of my favourite processes I've ever run in an education setting was I used to, because I used to teach, even though I was the head, I taught RE, I taught physics, I taught um, maths, I taught lots of things. Um, and I I, just, I felt I felt like the students at that school were like being given a Ferrari to drive. I thought, you know, what, what can I do with these guys? Let's see what we can do. And what I, what I found you could do is co-construct a whole course. Um, you, could, you could start a course by saying, right, guys, what should we learn? Um, what questions should we ask? 
and get them to design a sequence of learning and present lessons and, and do all sorts of instructional inputs. And all my students taught lessons, they did demonstrations, they organized practicals to the point where I would make them all practice them with the equipment in the prep room and order the equipment. And I'd say, well, that's your lesson. And I wouldn't prepare the lesson at all. I would literally turn up and say, so guys, okay, let's, what are we doing today? And they would say, and they would do it. They would present slides, they'd set homework, they'd mark books. It's absolutely fantastic. These are like kids in year nine, you know, teaching chemistry to each other. And, but, but then, and then, and then I, I got some really good GCSE results from one class who I taught in this way all the way through. And Greg just said, yeah, but that's like lucky pants. <laughs> just because you wear lucky pants on exam day doesn't mean that's the reason you did well. <laughs> and he was right. I think we just totally burst my bubble there. Now, they, they didn't do well because of the co-construction. They did well because they probably would have done any well anyway. They did well because uh, they were intelligent students who worked hard. And the co-construction was just a thing we did as well. It, was, it wasn't any cause and effect that I was proving. But there's... That to me was a good pushback. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe. I mean, I think there's more of a conversation to be had there because there's also like there are other outcomes other than exam results. And so, you know, what did they get out of the co-construction that they that that didn't show up on the exam, but that you know that they wouldn't have got if you'd have you know gone in there with with tightly planned lessons. They they got to exercise ownership. They got a sense that their voice is important. You know that they that they are valued. That they can you know regulate their own learning. That they can trust their own decisions. You know, there's all kinds mm. of other stuff that's going on in that co-construction process. That's not just about the exam. No, totally. But the problem was I'd I'd I'd, I'd set a trap for myself by championing their results. Right. Okay. <laughs> so I was saying. They all, I mean, they nearly all got A stars in GCSE in the whole class. Uh, I think like two got an A and the rest got A stars. They were amazing. And so, but, and I, I sort of had, had foolishly um, tried to make a claim about that. But you're right. I mean, the, the, the other stuff was, and there were two particular examples, if I, if I just talk about that briefly now, if you don't mind. One, one of them was uh, Taran's plan. I, I still use that in some of my training whenever I get asked to talk about stretch and challenge. So Taran's plan was this amazing thing where, he was in one of my, he was one of my year 11s and because the whole time all the way through the course we we had mapped out that we've got to teach the syllabus and i was always saying where are we i used to do that it was like theatrically guys where are we where have we got up to so far and they would tell me we've covered this and we still haven't covered that okay great so what should we do next and then there was a bit of a time i was thinking are we going to finish the syllabus on time so i just shared that with the class so like, where are we up to and and um Taron emailed me that night and he, he said, sir, I think I've worked it out what we could do. And he, he had made a spreadsheet which listed all the topics that we hadn't covered and every single lesson we had left in the year, like literally week to week. And he said, if we map it like this, we could probably manage it. <laughs> and he's, this boy's 15 and he's emailed me like the entire plan for the rest of the year. With, <laughs> he said, we could do some tests here, revision here. And, we've, and it was like, it was absolutely amazing. I've got this picture of it. So I show that to people. Like, that is a boy who's 15 who feels genuine ownership of this course. He also feels he's got a re relationship with me where he can say, why don't we do this? And so we just said, let's do Taron's plan, and it worked a dream. It was amazing. And the other one was a lesson where some boys were, this was when they were in year 10, were going to do a lesson on optics. They were going to explain how the, the lenses work in the eye. And that was they, they were going to present the lesson. And... Um, I'd forgotten. 
<laughs> that I had a meeting. So I had to say to them, I emailed them at, at night saying, guys, I'm not going to be there tomorrow. I've forgotten. And um, I've, I've just realized it's your lesson. And, and they emailed me back saying, don't worry, so we'll, we've got it covered. <laughs> and so I just emailed the cover manager and said, look, the boys think they can do it. So just put someone in there, but they'll be fine. And, and they did. So they taught the whole lesson without me even being there. And the cover teacher was just blown away. He just said, it was just ridiculous. They just came in, got the slides out, taught the lesson, set the work. These kids are in year 10. And it's because they felt a total responsibility. It was like a genuine, legitimate role they had. And they just followed it through. It was absolutely epic. And that type of thing only happens because the trust is there, the expectations are there, and it's there's a sort of authenticity to it. The kids can do it if you give that if you let them, you know, that's the thing. And I've often I've, this is where in other contexts people just think, oh, you couldn't do that, you couldn't do that. But you you can. And so you were saying that you could do it in this like Ferrari setting because you were with these. Was it a selective school? Yeah, very. So th- selective, these yeah. are very like highly highly able uh, young people. Have you ever tried to work in that way in the state sector in a non-selective setting in like working in, with co-construction, for example? Yeah, I have, and 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 you can do it, um, but you what you find is that you just have to manage it more. You have to scaffold it more, and. You can do it where the curriculum is slightly more open. So if you have to cover the syllabus, um, you feel slightly less relaxed about the students presenting something if you know that it's it's really they're benefiting from it because they're delivering, but the children around them are finding it that hard, much harder to engage with because it's just there's a skill set that the, the, the presenters don't have when they're leading lessons. So you find that you end up stepping in a bit more and being a bit more selective in who maybe does certain thing. But you can do things like um, at the beginning of a course, especially in key stage three, where the the stakes are lower and it's more flexible. You can say, here's a topic. What questions do you think we could ask about this? What should we study? What might be a good way through this process? And then get the students to design questions and things. And then, you can actually say, well, look, here's here's the scheme at work. Guess what? A lot of your questions are on it, and you 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 give them this feeling of being involved. And some some things definitely work, like constantly getting the students to have a sense of ownership of where are we in the course, where are we through the curriculum. But it's just the, the kind of input side of it. You have to be a little bit more um, careful with because some children they just find it genuinely hard to stand up and genuinely teach something. It, it, it's it's more like they're giving a presentation, but it's yeah. not really explanatory in the same way some slightly more higher higher attaining students can do. So that that's a slight difference. Yeah. And also in terms of the safeguarding, I, I wouldn't. There are just harder things like the idea that you trust a group of of ten year you know a year tens to lead a lesson without it, that would just be a riskier thing, and you wouldn't want to put pressure on the cover teacher. So you just feel like. I don't think I can do that here because it's just not fair on those people. Yeah, yeah, I can see what you mean, and and I, I mean we we maybe get into this later. I don't know, but I, I see what you you know you mentioned earlier about how you're not persuaded particularly that that selective education is a good thing, um, or that, you know at least that you had reservations about it, and I think that probably most people share those. Um, I certainly do. 
But there is something about, I can see what you're saying, because I work um, in, or have worked in, not as a teacher, but as a consultant um, in many private schools and, you know, some of them very affluent independent schools. And they're amazing places. They really are like phenomenal. And if, if it was possible for, you know, in some utopian world for every local school to be like you know habs or whatever um you know you would you would want that for your kid wouldn't you and and i've heard it argued that you know that that to level the playing field to get rid of private schools like labor were arguing in the last election and to just sort of level the playing field would in some sense be an act of vandalism because you'd be taking something that is really extraordinary, unfair and unequal though it is, and you'd be sort of just making everything more of a sort of homogenous middle middle zone. Yeah, I, I feel like I mean it is a challenge. I mean, you you have to. There are two things. There's sort of in the in the long run or in the ideal world, do you think we should have people opting out of the state sector or having selective education? Uh, no. So, but but because we but how do we deal with what we've got now? Do you close schools that are already highly functioning and and sort of meshed into their community in a certain way? And again, I'd say no. So what you have to do is plan a reform process which is legitimate, and there are changes you can make like opening selective schools to have less of you know uh, to be less selective <laughs> and um having a and i think there are there are changes that you could make and and move towards that but essentially you know the debate to have is do we do we think in the state sector you should have sp- essentially specialist schools for high attaining students um given all the benefits all, all the stuff that people try to claim in the grammar school sector around um social justice and stuff i i think having worked in that sector i just totally unjustifiable and and similarly in the independent sector i always frustrates me that people want it their cake and eat it they they don't like the idea that they're not sort of doing the social justice bit having decided to work in a selective environment or a independent environment and i just think well you just have and it is <laughs> i'm sorry you can't have it both ways in the the, the comprehensive state sector is much more demanding in in many many ways and you have to be comfortable with the choice that you make and ultimately I, when i was working in a grammar school i wasn't I, I felt increasingly every time i met all my comprehensive school colleagues that i couldn't justify my own school's existence and that was something which eventually made me like quite keen to leave to find a, a comprehensive school i could work in which you know as we'll maybe talk about later didn't, didn't work out so well but but there are some things about those, those schools which are amazing. And you think, well, why can't we have this elsewhere? It's an interesting conversation. Um, some of the traditions are, are amazing. I, mean, I, I still remember you know, assemblies wearing my gown, looking like a character from Hogwarts, and, and all the children singing Jerusalem, um, a thousand students singing Jerusalem at the top of their voices with real gusto and passion. It, it's it's amazing. And you think, wow, look at this. And and some of the vertical modelling I saw at that school was exceptional. So right from year seven, the students see the sixth formers on in their presence on the stage, talking, giving out notices. You know, you've got year 13 saying the philosophy society is meeting at lunchtime. Make sure you're there. They're, they're the ones organising the house music and the house drama and they're debating. And you've got 11-year-olds mixing with 18-year-olds it's 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 an amazing kind of journey to go on and to see all that working. So you can't be thinking, how can we put that into a, a more mixed setting? And there are some challenges. So I think we can learn from selective schools because what they do is, in some cases, just unbelievable. 
but I, don't, I still don't think we, they, you can justify the social selection and the privilege within the state sector. I, I just think it's it, and it is a complicated um, dilemma. Yeah, thank you. So, so let's go back to the publishing thing. So, so as far as I can tell, the first book that you published was called "Teach Now: The Joy of Teaching Science." Is that is that correct? Is that the first one that you wrote? Yeah, that's the first one I wrote. That was part of a series that Jeff Barton was putting together, uh, and he asked me to do the, the the science one, and there was an, a history one, and a English one, and a maths one, and so on. Right. Yeah, I mean, I've not read that book, but I was just wondering about the about the. So, so it seems to me that like there are there are essentially two types of teachers in that there there are teachers who are like really into their subject, especially at secondary. Teachers who are really into their subject and they're really passionate about you know developing the next generation of scientists or or you know historians or whatever it might be, and there are other people who are really interested in helping kids develop more widely like that whole like you know developing the whole child as it's sometimes referred to you know um and that's something that that I certainly found I was was a science teacher like yourself um and I used to find that it was quite frustrating sometimes that like when I was restricted to talking to kids about science there were some kids that I just couldn't begin to get interested in a conversation about nuclear power stations or you know, electromagnets or the periodic table or whatever it was. Some of them would just look at me. You know that sort of thousand-yard, like, dead-eyed <laughs> stare you get sometimes? Some kids just like, oh, like, what are you even on about? Like, you irrelevant man, just, like, go away sort of thing. They don't say it, but you can just see it in their eyes. They're like, you just can't connect with them. And I found that when I started teaching PSHE with those same kids, they would come alive in, in conversations about other things. And it might be, a, you know, just a reflection of my own limitations as a science teacher. But I wonder if, if you recognise that. And would you, do, you, do you think that you sort of fall primarily into like really, really into like the joy of teaching science? And I know that you are really into teaching science. Or do you, do you, do you recognise this other sort of broader view of teaching you know as a, as a process of you know human development rather than sort of d- developing subject knowledge well that's a good question I, I i for me it's hard to separate them i definitely find the subject side of it really fantastic and and for me i, I feel like the relationship side of it comes through that you're always teaching students something and of course, there is an aspect of just being around young people that, uh, and, and enjoying the relationship building aspect of it generally. And I've always enjoyed things like residentials and field trips where you get to talk to children in a slightly different setting. But I, I don't think I'd have sustained a career in the teaching if it wasn't for that when I'm in the classroom with, t- with students and I'm getting to explore some aspect of physics or maths, that that, that would be the most important thing. So, yeah, I, 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 I think they go together, don't they? But I, I definitely think that a lot of really good teacher relationships, teacher-student relationships, are forged through the enthusiasm about the learning. Definitely for me. I mean, I used to, I used to be sort of like a magnet for kind of geeky science students coming up to me after lessons and saying, oh, sir, have you seen this? And sir, have you seen that? And I used to love that. And they used to as well. Like, they, this boy used to talk to me all about Kevlar and, you know, different, <laughs> different you know, bulletproof vests and, so have you seen this? It's really cool. This have you heard that they developed this new material that does that? And you think that kid needs me there to talk to about his his geekery, and I was happy to provide that. 
Yeah, yeah. I, that was one of my favourite things about, yeah, you get those kids, they've like torn out some little newspaper article yeah. about space that they read at the weekend. They're like, oh, look at this, they've discovered a new galaxy or something. Um, yeah, it is amazing when that happens. Um, and I, I wonder, just reflecting on my own past, because you were, you were, you did, did you do a degree in physics? Yeah, so I did, I did um, yeah, pure physics. Yeah, so you were like really into science. I think that, like, I, I had some sort of bad careers advice at some point when I was a kid. I chose sciences because, ridiculously, because my brother, who was older than me, had nailed it and had like got straight A's and he'd done sciences and he went on and became a, do- a doctor. Um, and I, I ridiculously chose to do science because <laughs> he had done them and, and he made it look easy. And it would have taken like a 10 second conversation for somebody to say, all oh, right, are you good at science? <laughs> and I'd be like, no, not really. Are you interested in it? Not really. Well, maybe they're not the subjects for you. And so I ended up sort of doing science, uh, you know, doing all the sciences at GCSE, three science A-levels, did hopelessly badly in them, scraped into a science degree at uni, quickly transitioned out of it later on. Um, so maybe it was just, <laughs> maybe I just wasn't really into science that much from the outset. Maybe I wasn't that well suited to see- teaching science for that reason. Well, maybe, but I'm, so, I mean, I, I, I found, um, I mean, I used to love physics at school and I did it for A-level and I suppose, you know, I, I felt I was reasonably good at it, but then, yeah, I always want, I just w- never had any other degree in mind. Pure physics, that was always what I was going to do. And I, I just loved it. I loved measuring things and the whole thing. I love the, the, the two ends of it, sort of particle physics and, you know, learning about leptons and stuff, and and also the the cosmology, so the big, so the big and the small, and fascinating stuff for me. And and so for me that and that was that was straightforward. And then I, I, my first job was in a sixth form college because I felt like I, t- I had a taste of that in my teaching practice. So that I felt like that was in I was in my element there for three years. I just taught A level physics and maths, and. I really felt like I, that that was a good thing for me to, to, to develop the skills of being a teacher and getting to work with slightly older students and not having to worry so much about behaviour management, which sort of was something I discovered later. But you mentioned the book, that The Joy of Teaching Science. I did feel slightly, because by, when I wrote that, I, I was a, a head teacher and it was a bit, I thought, should I really be writing this book? I'm not really a full-on science teacher anymore. And I wrote a book about the things I felt were quite foundational, sort of traditional experiments and things like that. And one of the reviews on Amazon, it's hilarious, it's probably one of the worst reviews any book has ever had. It literally says, fear for your children. <laughs> That's the headline, fear for your children. One star. And, and it basically, it's basically somebody saying, you know, this is the kiss of death to, to your, site, your kids' uh, enjoy of science because they just hated the fact that I was saying, do these sort of tried and tested practicals and i think that's odd it's like it's like the luxury of someone who is an you know expert in shakespeare and then decides that it's a bit old hat and wants to teach something else you know you, children have an entitlement to do basic foundational things that are traditional because that's where the uh, what the subject is built on and um, the fact that we could do more modern things or more contemporary things as well that's that's true but i do think there are some foundational experiments which i think are really really important for teachers certainly to know how to, to do them so anyway so the, this guy hated it <laughs> 
Fascinating. And there's a microcosm of the education debate in a nutshell, isn't it? Somebody writes a book called The Joy <laughs> of Teaching Science, and some of the review is Fear for Your Children. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there it is. Okay, so so then came later on came the the learning rainforest, and I know that this is a metaphor that you have um, you know you you wrote about it for a long time on in your blog, um, and it was interesting. I'd be interested to hear the, about you know your use of that metaphor and what the key idea is in that book, and just to introduce it, I just like share a, a little bit from uh, Martin Robinson wrote the foreword, which is really interesting. He says it is environment that leads Sherrington into his chosen metaphor, the learning rainforest, and one is struck by the organic vision this conjures up. His ideal school seems far away from the exam factory of common conception. Is the rainforest school a place in which children roam free to explore? Are you about to read a book full of 60s hippie idealism in which anarchy and chaos are just one step away? Fortunately not. Um, so so what is the what is the idea of the of the learning rainforest and why is it that you're so struck by this as a as a metaphor for your vision of of what schools and what uh, what education should be i think it came out of a, a reflection that you know, when i was at kegs and also previously and at various schools but i was sort of starting to write about teaching and i i had done a couple of sessions a couple of a couple of what sessions sorry so training sessions sort of um right you know, delivering CPD, and and I felt like I was trying to I was trying to persuade teachers that when we were sharing ideas, we weren't mandating specific responses, because that was people's experience that when we're being told stuff, we're being told what to do. And I was saying, no, we're not. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm, I'm sharing ideas that you can then use. So I wanted to convey this idea that it's not a plantation. We're not here, sort of mandating stuff. And so I thought, well, the opposite. Of, what's the opposite of a plantation? It's rainforest. So I, I, I use this metaphor of plantation thinking and rainforest thinking. So plantation thinking meaning when, when someone has a good idea, then everyone has to do it because it must be good. Therefore, it must be good for everybody. I thought, no, because yeah, kegs, for example, so they were some of the most maverick, eccentric, off-message teachers you've ever found. <laughs> and they were all really good. So you realise that there was even if you wanted to tell them what to do, they wouldn't do it. So you, you, but they were excellent in their own way. So rainforest thinking is, in, is encouraging excellence to, to take form, but not mandating what that form should be. And I felt that was a really useful metaphor then for the students. Now, when we want, you can find children can do amazing things that you didn't realize they could do because you set up the conditions where that's possible. So you, you motivate them, you challenge them, you make sure they know a lot, but then you say, right, what can you do with it? And they, they, they kind of surprise and delight you, like when you walk through a rainforest. So I found that the rainforest metaphor really captured this spirit of teaching where uh, trees don't grow by magic. You know, there's a logic, there's a science, there's a, there's a kind of na- a, a, a procedure that's followed, but the outcomes can be diverse. So I, I just think there's a lot in that metaphor which, which rings true for me. There's this structural aspect there's a logical aspect you can explain why things happen, but the form it takes can be much more different and varied than people sometimes allow. Yeah, okay, I see. And and so the it's sort of about diversity, isn't it? And like that's the thing about the rainforest; it's not a plantation. That like, like things are different, and yet it sort of works as like a harmonious whole as well. There's some there's something about diversity that is simultaneously, you know, it's like the ecosystem idea. Um, and this is something that 
I think about a lot as well about like the way in which the I think that like, I was talking to somebody the other day and they said like what's the one thing if you if you could change one thing like what would it be and it really made me sort of pause for a minute and I think that it would just be about like loosening the screws a little bit or a lot and and um, <clears throat> and celebrating and recognizing the diversity of experience the diversity of interests because you know we know that we know one thing about about child development is that they're, they're not all the same you know and that they develop at different rates and lots of what we do is because it's efficient and because it's efficient to 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 process kids in age-based batches for example it's efficient to have them in classrooms and sitting in rows it's efficient to teach in in certain ways within the constraints of that system um, and it's efficient to have them all sit the same exams in the same sort of month when they're you know age 15 or 16 but but just because it's efficient doesn't mean that it's you know that it's in those young people's best interest and i think that that's it's something that i'd really like to see more of like just to to have some to somehow think of of a way that we can increase the flexibility and to be responsive to the needs and interests of young people um you know while while bearing in mind that this still needs to be scalable because you know the fact is that there's like loads of kids right and 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 there's many more of them than there are teachers and so we need to think of this in a way that isn't going to lead to that kind of chaos that martin was alluding to in that foreword yeah i mean i think this is i mean these are some of the challenges that you you wrestle with and sometimes Sometimes people teach as if they're running a tutorial for four people with a kind of audience of 26. And, and that's not a, that's not a very that doesn't work because they don't they engage with the four in a way which they would if if no one else was in the room. And that's a nice small group teaching situation. And you've got 26 kids who aren't practicing, who aren't thinking, who aren't engaging, sort of being dragged along. And then and they don't learn as much. So that you, you have to sort of some instructional methods that I, I promote are are literally based on the fact that you do have a class of 20 of 30 and you do need to make them all think and you do need to all give them airtime. And it's not the same as if you were in a small group environment where, where you could be a bit more kind of loose about those things and a bit more organic. And so I do think those constraints are real. So we, we have to recognize that. So but so are we talking about an ideal world or a like the fundamentals of a learning process, or are we talking about the realities of teaching in a social group, which is bigger than than you might ideally have? And of course, there's a whole group size aspect. That's just one where we have to be much, a very much smaller group than a class of thirty for it for that change to be real. Even even when you're up to ten, you know, involving ten children in a really meaningful discussion is a lot harder than three or four. So beyond a, a very small group, I think you get into instructional teaching methods where you need to be much more deliberate about all of that. And, and, that, and I really think that's true. But then, you know, there are other things like in terms of the outcomes. One of the things I feel like we mandate too much. One of my favorite techniques to use as a teacher is um, open response tasks as part of the flow of a lesson. Because I feel like if the children ne- if the children never get the chance to make choices even bad choices <laughs> they don't learn about that dynamic and uh, so you need to say okay so what would you do now what how would you express this and some of the best work i've ever seen from students has been where they were not told what to do they were allowed to decide and they made wonderful things or just had this idea and went with it and 
because it was so sort of niche, you would never have mandated that for everybody. But because they did it in their own way, it was actually quite special. And you do need to have those things. So it's about knitting those things together. You you knit together those sort of moments into a, a more structured uh, sort of system so that the, you get the kind of best of both without it all being about all one or all the other, which is where the rain, rainforest, the learning rainforest, leads into this mode A, mode B uh, characteristic, which I invented to... I, 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 I just made it... I, I kind of wasn't sure whether to call it part one or part two, but I was thinking, no, mode A, mode B, that make, that works. And I found a lot of teachers have told me that they really like that because it helps them separate two types of teaching, but also combine them. Yeah. So can you, I was, I was about to ask you about that. So can you, can you break this down? What is mode A teaching and what a mode B teaching? Well, so mode A teaching is, a, is instructional teaching. So it's, you know, if you're, if I'm a science teacher, I need to explain to you how, you know, refraction works or something. I'm going to, I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you some examples. I'm going to do a demonstration. I'm going to ask you some questions, but I'm going to then, I'm going to guide the learning. So it's instructional teaching. If I'm a math teacher, I'm going to do that a lot, especially if you're new to it. And, um, so instructional teaching is mode A. Explain, model, get the students to practice what you've shown them, give them some feedback, scaffolding, and so on. Whereas mode B teaching is things like the co-construction, where the students are preparing a presentation, or you say, respond any way you like, or go and make something which represents this, or an open-ended investigation, or where you're not in instructional mode. And it's got all sorts of aspects to it. Um, Collaborative learning, where the, the goal is explicitly the, the collaborative aspect is an actual learning goal itself, not just the, the knowledge aspect of it, all kinds of things. So um, that's what it means. Yeah, OK. So so mode A teaching is instructional teaching, and that's like explaining, modelling, um, probing for understanding, things like think, pair, share, um, you know, feedback, you know, that traditional teaching, essentially, traditional sort of standard, you know, uh, pedagogy. And then mode B stuff, you know, the examples that you give in the book are things like, you know, hands-on teaching, uh, you know, throwing them in at the deep end, doing project-based learning, um, doing creative projects, um, class forums, and so on. Um, and in the like, so so as you know, I I sort of touched upon on your on this idea in in the book that I wrote recently with Kate McAllister, Fear is the Mind Killer, which was about learning to learn and self regulated learning. And essentially, I don't know if this if this ideas with your vision, but essentially, I see mode A as being you know traditional teaching of subject knowledge, and and mode B teaching is the sort of the learning to learn stuff, essentially. It's about that that stuff that we were talking about earlier, the sort of the developing the whole child thing. And and you were saying that the, the two are, are intertwined. And of course they can be. Um, and in the book, you sort of, you, you suggest like an 80-20 ratio of like mode A to mode B. Although you, you recognise that, you know, that, that, that that's just a, a number that you come up with and that people might argue about that and might the, it might, you know, look different in different contexts. Can you explain a bit about how you see that ratio working? Yeah, I mean, it's a very loose idea. Uh, it, it's it's um, me reflecting on what I think I would typically do. So it's not even a recommendation. It's just saying I personally feel that most of my time is instructional because that's what I need to do. And then I, I about 20% of the time, so, you know, one lesson in five or whatever, roughly or whatever it is, it's not literally like that. But you're saying 
like over to you, you go and do things. And it's interesting because for me, I mean, it's, it's good to try and make these connections, but I would say um, it, it, you're learning to learn when you're doing instructional teaching, you know, because when you're sort of, for example, doing retrieval practice in, a, in an instructional setting, you're learning to learn then about how do I know what I know? How do I practice stuff? How do I learn from a modeling procedure while I'm being shown something? How do I absorb that information and, and then learn to do something? That's learning to learn. So I, I don't see it in that same way. And also when you're doing, say, a project, um, which is uh, something you've designed, it has there is a, a meta aspect to it. How do I do a project? But it's about something. It's, it's, it's actually a subject-based thing, and you're actually learning the curriculum that is that subject. So I don't separate them in that way. It's more the mode of learning, and it's more to do with being sort of perhaps teacher-led rather than, than student-led. It's perhaps more like it. And, and things like... Um, so the way I see it is to, to make choices which are creative. Yes, so how? Well, by giving them a structure where they can make a really good sound choice about how to express an idea, how to how to pull information together from different sources and present it. That helps them synthesize that to a coherent schema, and they have to then communicate that, so they're developing that skill. Um, so I think all those things like oracy and communicating have to have an authenticity. They have to be for a reason. And if you work, weave them into a curriculum structure like a project where they have to present their findings, it, it's got depth to it. So it's not, it absolutely isn't anything to do with not having a strong subject or curriculum home. It really is strongly subject led. It's just the students are making the choices. And, and some of those ideas on there, like deep end, it's when you conspicuously don't instruct them, where you sort of hold back and say, right, I want you to work this out for yourselves, because and I want you to, I want you to see what you do when you're, you really need to draw on your resources. And I've seen some amazing lessons at, at, at Kegs where it was just incredibly demanding. The, the teachers were saying, I'm not going to help you about this. I want you to really sweat it out. But the students knew that was what it was supposed to feel like. They didn't panic because they were told it was going to be hard. And um, so they were learning what it feels like to, to, to struggle and to cope with that. But it was about some maths problems or it was about uh, you know, wrestling with some really complicated maps in geology or geography and having to link them all together. And the teacher was saying, I'm not going to help you. <laughs> it's great. I loved it. But then, of course, they could do that because they'd already been taught enough knowledge to sort of use it. And then, then they would come in. So that, to me, is, a, is a how it works. It's more about... The, the the teacher taking more of a back seat in the mode B, but still yeah. strongly guiding it and, and weaving it into the whole. Yeah, I see. And thank you for that. I I, I can I absolutely take your point. I think that teacher led versus student led is a better way of thinking about it rather than, you know, dis distinguishing between knowledge and learning to learn, because of, of course the two are the two are intertwined. Um I mean there is something that's like so I've thought about this a lot, and since since we're on the topic of learning to learn, let's just touch on this briefly. Since learning to learn became a the language of learning to learn sort of really started to take root in around the seventies when metacognition first sort of entered the lexicon. Um, people were talking about whether, like, can you teach this stuff dis discreetly? Can you help young people to become more self-regulated, independent, resilient, whatever words it is that you want to use describe? Um, to be, you know, effective, proactive, you know, um, on, on the front foot learners. 
um, or, sh- or, or should this be infused throughout the curriculum? And it seems like the, 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 the version that you're describing is an infusion model where like, like these, these practices of, like you say, oracy and debating and project-based learning and student-led stuff is, is happening within, within subject classrooms. Um, and most people seem to agree that that is the way to do it. Um, but from from my experience and from the research that I've seen done, there was a really interesting study that was done uh, where lots of teachers were interviewed about their understanding of learning to learn. And there's, there's like a narrow conception and a broad conception of it. And I think that a narrow conception of it is things like, you know, you were talking about retrieval practice and how, how memories work and mnemonic memory strategies and study skills and revision techniques and exam techniques and, and stuff like that. Um, and then there's this broader conception of learning to learn, which is about like um, essentially that, that that sense of becoming. It's like about self-actualization. So it's about helping the young person to to grow into themselves, to be able to become um, more confident and for that confidence to grow and to spill out into other areas and so on. Um, and that's a broader that's a broader agenda, and it's something that you can do through, for example, projects where they get to choose the topic. You know, so so although we would have subjects, you know, there would be a pro- when we did projects in in learning to learn lessons, they weren't projects about nothing. There would be projects about you know a, a, about something, but they they were able to exercise choice about what that topic was. Um, and they were therefore able to to follow their own interests, and they were able to sort of to grow in that way. And what I've found is that is that the eighty twenty this idea of an infusion model it's like it it's the ideal version in theory but in practice it doesn't work because most teachers in this study where they interview lots of teachers about their understanding of learning to learn most teachers have got a narrow conception of learning to learn that they think that it's about this sort of this this agenda which is about you know passing tests essentially um, or you know improving memory and it's not addressing this broader agenda which I think that they're you know you could argue that there's a space for and even where people where teachers did find that that uh, you know where where teachers did have that broad conception of learning to learn as a process of like human development of of becoming more fully yourself they couldn't find time to to do that stuff within the context of subject learning and that was certainly my experience as a science teacher like there's so much stuff to cover that it just ends up that it just becomes all mode A and like the mode B stuff just sort of gets gets squeezed out. Yeah, well, so I, so I mean, it's funny because I, I started talking about like in retrieval practice as just part of it, but of course there's a much broader scope to that. And so when I'm talking about my students having done co-construction or open-ended projects or uh, a, a class forum, all the things I put in my mode B section in the road learning rainforest are things that I've I've done myself and. So for me, that is what I'm saying. So it's not that you squeeze it out because you're saying, I don't want them to just learn this through uh, instructional teaching because I think there is more to it. So that's why it's there. But I still feel like it's 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 located in, the, in a curriculum. And for me, while when I've spoken to teachers, even though there are some potentially transferable aspects from that self-esteem building and some sort of basic sort of planning skills and learning how to organize time and self-regulation that that transfer you do it through the curriculum and of course you like you said you have some choices so you might say why don't we carve out some time from the curriculum and get students to do any project they like and that's okay but then you then there are some some deficits in terms of 
teacher knowledge. So, for example, when I've got students doing um, co-construction, that wouldn't work if they were just sort of teaching their student, their friends stuff that they wanted to teach. It, it, there's a rigor there. That, that I'm saying, no, I want you to explain how the ticker tape timer works, which is a solid bit of curriculum knowledge, and I can tell you've done it well. And there's a huge amount of – to stand up and explain to your class how that works is a very deep process to go through and deliver well, which the students I used to teach did do well. But it's it's the vehicle for the skills of the oracy and the confidence is a curriculum thing, which has got depth. So for me, like you said, there is always a project about something. But if that something is connected to the instructional teaching as part of the whole, it's going to be more likely that the students will do it well, I think. And and even some of the things that you've you've described in your 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 project um where you were sort of talking about the genericism of the learning to learn i actually felt that when you described it to me it felt like a just a, a curriculum like some writing skills that's curriculum um and even when the students have made a choice they've made a choice of a curriculum area which still has a knowledge content and that is knowledge that they are using in order to then develop their other skills so there's always content there's always substance yeah and so I feel like it, it's 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 almost like a different way of of just deciding what that content is, rather than saying is there content because there of course there is, and so that's curriculum, and it's knowledge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we called it the learning skills curriculum. Mm. Um, you know, recognizing that that there is there is absolutely knowledge in it. And it, I had a really interesting conversation again. This was on Ollie Lovell's podcast where we're talking about like there are you know you need to be, like you we're talking in learning to learn about developing a skilled learners you know they're they're skilled in in you know using the internet they're skilled at organizing their time and resources and so on and then underneath those those sort of learning skills or habits uh, is knowledge there's like there's knowledge about how to use the internet and there's knowledge about how to organize a good discussion and then beneath that the skills again and it's like this sort of like interesting regress you like and and fundamentally it's there's an emotional aspect to this and this again is something that 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 i think is sometimes missing from the from the discussion about this that we talk about about learning to learn and metacognition as though they're synonymous i know that the eef do it says on their website metacognition also known as learning to learn (laughs) and in my view that's only one small part of it you know there's like there's, there's metacognition absolutely but there's also you know cognition but there's also behaviors and underneath all of that stuff there's fundamentally like an emotional response to to learning to 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 being at school in general to particular subjects to particular teachers and you sort of need to engage you know the, the, all levels of this it's like it's a complex problem yeah um that requires a solution that reflects that that complexity that's why I think, anyway i don't want to that, that's why i feel like you need to stud the kind of um, the curriculum that you plan like if even if you're very so strongly teacher led and you've got this anxiety about curriculum coverage and you feel that in your experience you need to be leading it and instructional teaching is key I still feel like, yeah, I get all of that, but then stand back from it and say, so what, are you saying that in the whole time you're teaching that class, or imagine you taught them from year seven to year 11, say, in a secondary, are they are they never going to do a project? And, and, and the people will say, well, no, I don't mean never. So you say, okay, so when then? When will it happen then? Um, when are they going to get that chance to make a choice or express themselves or have an opinion or... Uh, select some aspect of the learning or feel some ownership of it beyond being just guided through by you it has to happen at some point when you get them to sort of maybe 
produce something which they then can share with a class, which is of their, showing their personal interest in the subject. Are you never going to do that? No, I'm not saying never. Okay, so when then? And you have to start saying, well, if these things have to be planned, they don't just happen because you'd like them, but you've got to plan them. You've got to start saying, well, let me create a... So then people say, but they're not very good at them. So you say, okay, but how do you get good at anything? You get good at something by doing it more than once. So if we want students to be good at doing presentations so they're valid, they have to do more than one. <laughs> you have to say, do we value that children coming in and talking and from in a prepared way about their knowledge or even in a structured but spontaneous way? Yes. Okay, so the first time they do it, it might not be very effective. So we have to then build their capacity so it becomes more and more productive so that when they're older, it's really fruitful and rich. And so there's a, so you have to, you have to sort of, these mode B things to me are so important that they're bed, they're wedded in. They're not stuck on the side and they are seen as absolutely essential. And, and that, that hopefully that's the message I'm trying to get, get across. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. And, and, and I, you know, I can absolutely value, you know, that it seems to me that the learning forest is a pretty good attempt at, you know, in, in a number of previous conversations that I've had on this podcast, we've talked about the need for a sort of a Hegelian, if it's not to put it into grand terms, a Hegelian synthesis of these like different teaching approaches, essentially, that are sometimes very simplistically categorized as like trad and prog. Um, and that actually we can work towards some sort of an integrated vision mm. of how these things can combine together. And it seems like that's what you were trying to do with, with that book. And I think that, you you know, you achieved some notable success with it. Um, and and I, I don't want to dwell too long on this on this learning to learn piece. Okay. <laughs> but as we're here, I just want to just there's, there's just one more point, I think, that is interesting to explore, which is that. Um, you know, the, the whole idea of self-regulation, it seems like you're not persuaded in the idea that we should have like separate lessons. You were saying that it, that it should happen within the context of subject lessons. But it seems to me that there's like a fundamental incompatibility in, uh, in, help, in, in trying to help young people to become self-regulated learners in what's essentially an externally regulated environment because it's regulated, you know, the what it is that they can learn is regulated by the teacher or by the curriculum. Um, and it seems to me, and, and, and on the flip side, you know, you were talking about developing oracy skills, for example. That's like not all teachers are equally comfortable with that. They're not confident in, for example, even in their own oracy skills. And so when you're talking about developing debating, for example, like that's quite a specific skill set that the majority of teachers don't have uh, and a knowledge base that the majority of teachers don't have and i think that if we if we farm out if we sort of you know um to to um outsource aspects of that mode b stuff to a learning to learn team who really are into all of that stuff and they really do get it then you can make it much more efficient when you know than having it taught sort of badly or to different standards by you know different subject teachers all across the piece yeah i can see that argument I, my experience has been though that there are lots of opportunities to use authentic what i call authentic sort of embedded things so I mean, in previous school, we did a map of oracy opportunities across the school from year seven to year 13. And it, before we kind of said everyone needs to do X, we said, well, what's already happening? And you worked out that, you know, in history, they did have debates and they wanted to do debates and all the teachers were working on doing debating in history. And then in RE, they had um, another type of oracy, um, which was going on there. In maths, they were doing quite a lot of stand up and explain the question uh, type oracy. And, and so there were, 
numerous, numerous, and in drama, they have this type of work. In art, they stand by their work and explain their thought process. So there are lots of different forms of organic, authentic uh, opportunities for speaking in different formats already. And so we're just saying, so what we need to do is make sure that that's an experience which is universal, which is done well, and that across the, across the, the, the piece, they get that. In terms of something like an open-ended project, so I agree. I mean, I think there are things like, um, you know, we, maybe this will, will come to this at some point, but I mean, I'm a big um, f- supporter of the notion of having a, a baccalaureate-style qualification that we work towards uh, in schools and colleges. And part of that, I would always recommend, would be a, a personal project. And I've worked with schools where they do that at Key Stage 3. They do it it's definitely in the sixth form with the EPQ. And I've known primary schools where the children all do a personal project. And that's where they do develop this sort of self-regulation about producing something personal. And, and I've always found those things to be incredibly valuable. It, it, when I was the head at Kegs, we used to do like a competition for, um, which had a prize to sort of motivate people, and which was to do, there were a range of projects that you could produce, like an art project, a science report, an essay. Um, and honestly, it was the most, some of the most incredible stuff I've ever seen students do in a school. Um, this boy produces anthology of his poems. Um, some students designed this... <laughs> remote control bomb disposal unit (laughs) and it was like honestly i just think so but those opportunities were part of the school fabric so yeah i agree i I think children do students do need opportunities for that kind of openness i do agree with that so where does that happen who delivers that does it have to be a separate kind of structural part of the curriculum i don't know I, i i just think there are pros and cons to that it depends on your on the curriculum constraints and um Sometimes I think this rainforest thing applies. If you've got multiple organic opportunities for students to have that opportunity, sometimes that's better than trying to mandate that everyone gets it in this structure, which has still got constraints. It's still got time constraints. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Let, let's pause that for now. We'll, we'll, we'll maybe we'll, we'll we'll definitely pick pick some some aspects of that conversation up later. So so let's go back to the publishing. Um, so after the rainforest came Rosenshine. Yeah. Um, it seems, and that's when things seem to ramp up by an order of magnitude. Um, can you explain firstly um, how this book came about and your, you know, your your journey and, and your experience of this? What became this like incredible phenomenon, really? Yeah. So what happened with Rosenstein's principles in action was that I, I started becoming being a consultant and doing training. Well, I, you know, more and more I think of myself more of a sort of training provider than a consultant because that's a lot of what I do. So I'd be doing training days and. People would ask me, you know, what's a good place to go to get a, a sense of what, you know, this sort of evidence-informed teaching might be, as people call it, using cognitive science. And when I came across Rosenstein's principles, which was via Twitter and via Oliver Caviglioli's blue uh, diagram, <laughs> his, his wall chart thing, I thought, wow, this is great. I read it. I thought, that's such a great sort of, you know, condensation of some really core principles about effective instructional teaching. So I was saying, I did a couple of research ed uh, presentations. And one of them was actually the first time I went, I went to America to um, do research ed at US, which is very, very exciting to be able to go there. And I met Dylan William there and stuff, which was really, really the first time I met him. 
But at that session, I did a presentation, Rosenshine's Principles, just to sort of share my thoughts about that paper with people. And this guy came up to me afterwards, who was a publisher, and he said, now, that would be interesting. In the US, we don't really have this kind of culture of research. We don't have teachers reading research papers. But there is this sort of thing called like an explainer. That's what he called it. Teachers will read sort of short pamphlets. And there's, there's a kind of format. So he says, do you think you could write your talk up in about 8,000 words, which you could make into a short pamphlet? So that's what he said. And so I thought, yeah, so I, I wrote it. But it was actually 12,000 words. It's still really short for a book. And then the John, John Cat said, well, if you're going to publish that in America, why don't we publish it in the UK? Uh, and I said, yeah, OK. And, so, and I, I, I expected it to be like, and there's nothing. I mean, it took me about three days to write it. <laughs> and and um, <laughs> I just was putting all the examples I put into my talk uh, into the book. And then we, we, the, because the paper itself is free to publish, it's, that's the copyright on it. We just said, well, let's put it in the back so people can have access to the paper. But as soon as it went, it was published in England, it just went absolutely berserk. I just, we just couldn't believe it. I, at one point, I think it got to something like number 17 of all books in the Amazon charts. <laughs> on the first weekend, it came out. I was like, I was looking at it going, what? That's just insane. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, my God, but it's so short. People are going to hate it because I was thinking, I, I was embarrassed. I was thinking, if I knew this many people would read it, I would have read it. <laughs> <laughs> Try not. <laughs> I would have. I was thinking, so I, I sort of was opening the book going, God, what did I actually say? People are actually reading this. Oh, my God. I hope it's only good. And that's really what it was like. It was a total fluke. And then, but then people say, no, we love it because it's short. <laughs> We've bought one for every teacher. They've got one in their pigeonhole. And that was the thing. It was the thing of, I want to give everyone something. So they've all read it. And weirdly, even though the PDF of Rosenstein's Principles is free, no one wants to get a kind of a sort of grubby printout on some A4 in their pigeonhole. <laughs> but they quite like having a nice little neat red book. And uh, it's yeah, just it's just it's to, it, it's just totally taken off. I mean, it sells them like I don't know, eighty, ninety thousand copies or something so far. It's just absolutely insane. It's incredible. And so, what is it that you think, apart from it being short? Um, what is it about this that you think has really resonated with people so much? I think it's the familiarity uh, with, with their practice. It's the connection between something I already do, but with an example of maybe something I could do differently to make it slightly better. So it's things like checking for understanding that question, you know, what have you understood? Or some of the examples I've given in it about, uh, you know, what it means to do modelling and scaffolding. Or and That's what people tell me. It's the examples I, that, that's the feedback I have all the time. It, it's made it, it's made sense to them. It's not generic. It's not a generic discussion about a research concept. It's a, sim- a series of examples based in the curriculum, so that and nearly every subject is mentioned at some point. So and it's examples of scripted questions and stuff like that. So people, that's the feedback I get. It's the fact that it makes that it's got examples, so that the ideas are not generic that makes people feel it's useful. So, yeah, that's that's the reason. And also then it's a kind of, because of subject examples of, you know, a few subjects are mentioned, it, it makes a group, a whole group of teachers feel they've got something in common. They can all talk about modelling and scaffolding or guided practice and independent practice. But, of course, you know, Rosenshine himself wrote these things down. So 
I feel like it's it's just a weird sort of bridge between a, a, a body of work which even even itself was, you know, just a loose gathering of some ideas that he'd gathered, and just communicating it through the the language of of kind of modern schooling that that people recognise. So they think, okay, I, I I can relate to what I'm saying more than they could even reading the Rosenshine Principles paper. Mm. Even though I, I always tell people to read it. I mean, in some of my sessions, I, we, we open the, the book um, or the pamphlet and say, look, this is literally this is what he says. This, this, and I read it out to them. Because <laughs> even though people have been given the book, it doesn't mean they've all read it. And, and I do feel like teachers need to be given a lot of space and time to engage with things, even when they've been given something in their hand. Yeah, yeah. And so this was just after. So, so did you ever have any contact with Rosenshine? Because he died, didn't he, in twenty seventeen? I've just looked it up. Yeah, he died before. So he'd he, he'd already died even before I'd even heard of him. So. Oh yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. So no. He's having this this posthumous uh, flourish of fame. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, he he he'd already died, and uh, yeah. So that that wasn't really an option. Right. Right, amazing, and so so that um, has led to this series of inaction books. So there was there's been the cognitive load theory in action that our friend Ollie wrote, um, and generative learning, and others. I'm assuming there are others in the pipeline. Yeah, there's one on. Um, so the next the next one's coming up. There's the Mar- Marge by Arthur Shimamura. So Nimish Lad is writing that, and that's nearly finished. And Art, Art Shimamura died last term. Actually, he died in October. Um, so. But he had been t- discussing this with Nimish, and uh, Kate Jones is writing one based on Dylan Williams and and Siobhan Leahy's five principles of formative assessment. And again, that book is currently in Dylan's hands, so Kate's finished writing it, and he's kind of commenting, and he he's been very involved. And then we've got um, Sonia Thompson, who's a, a head teacher at St Matthews in Birmingham. She's written a book with some of her colleagues on Ron Berger's An Ethic of Excellence. And Ron Berger, again, has been involved and is writing a forward and stuff. So it's really good that when the people have been involved, that they've been close to it. So those are the next ones coming up. Yeah. And then we've got another, So there's a couple more beyond that, but those are the next three. Right. Fantastic. And, and the, the basic idea is that there's usually a publication at the heart of it, and it's like either a paper or a book that you're sort of simplifying or just illuminating and making, you know, bringing to life with practical... Uh, examples is that the, that's the basic idea of the series yeah isn't it? it's the basic idea that you take a paper and then say what does it look like in practice and yeah that it's i mean i i think ollie lovell's book is particularly uh helpful because so many people have heard, heard about cognitive load theory but it's actually quite hard to get hold of a a thin book i mean the, the john sweller book is, is cost a fortune and it's not easily accessible um and he's done a really good job of that and the Fiorella yeah. and Mayer Generative Learning by Mark and Zoe Enser, also really good. Um, and, and John Thompson and his colleagues wrote this really interesting book based on the Collins paper, uh, Cognitive Apprenticeship. And that's really interesting. But it's like, that's a m- much more of a collaborative. There's like 23 different short chapters. Each one of them is a teacher saying, this is how a cognitive apprenticeship happens in my subject. And I, But all, all three of them so far have been a really, really good, really interesting Mm, yeah yeah i agree um and and so lastly um the walkthroughs which is the latest um also also a hit <laughs> i'm often seeing screen grabs of like the top end of the amazon chart this is this is the, the education chart but you know it's often like you know walkthroughs one is like number one walkthroughs two is number two 
cognitive load theory is number three. You know, it's like you know, it's dominating the top of the charts almost permanently. Yeah, I mean, walkthroughs has been an absolute joy. I, I, I've still pinched myself that I'm able to be doing this because, um, I mean, if Oliver Cavigliotti, Oliver had the idea for the book um, and approached me about writing it. And then the whole thing we've constructed around it with a materials and uh, a whole community of schools have subscribed to that. And it's an ongoing journey. We're still, in, you know, just getting going in a way. But, we, yeah, we, we and it, it's been a real... I don't know. As you, as you sort of lease of life for me because it's meant that I can do stuff slightly differently, and the, the whole connection with schools is very, very vivid because a lot of the schools have bought into this materials, and then I work really closely with them. I do most of my days. I'm talking to schools about how to deliver the content of the walkthroughs in their school, and I love that. So it's like a real bridge between the ideas and actual practice through the books. Yeah, so so alongside, so there's the books themselves, and in a very vanishingly small chance that anybody listening hasn't heard of them, <laughs> can you just give like a very short summary of what the walkthroughs are? Yeah, so basically they're um, a visual guide to some core teaching techniques uh, and ideas, and in each book we cover about fifty teaching strategies, including sort of behaviour, curriculum, questioning. Uh, and some of the mode B things we talked about earlier. But of course, we also have some summaries of some key research papers and also some summaries of some key methods for implementing the ideas in, in a CPD system. So it's like a sort of guide, and we call it a guide for instructional coaching because eventually we hope it will influence people to move more into a coaching model. But that's what it is. So each page is a, a spread of five steps to explain a questioning technique or what did Arthur Shimamura say or what did Dan Winningham say, or a, or a, a retrieval practice technique. And it's I, I've done the short paragraphs of text, and Oliver has done the graphic illustration, so it's a visual thing, so you can imagine teachers doing it. And that's what it is, and it's a, you know, they're sort of colourful and highly sort of designed so that they, they're engaging to, to visually, and they just they just provide a framework for teachers to have conversations about teaching, basically. Yeah, yeah, it is a beautifully designed thing. I'm just, I'm just scrolling through it now on my Kindle on my phone. Um, it, it's a really attractive looking book. Can I just ask about the five steps thing? Why did you decide to do each of them as a five step process? It's funny actually because there's there's this fantastic uh, book called Fred the Gardener, which which Oliver's got from like 1940s, and it's like a a, a book of how to do gardening and it's almost exactly the same size as as the walkthroughs and each of the gardening steps is in this five things so we he must have had that in his head but when but when we met we, we we started saying when we first had our meeting to plan the walkthroughs we we talked about some steps and how many steps over should be and there's just something about the double page a a5 opening and having symmetry where you sort of have a, an introduction and then some steps and and five just works you've got three panels on each side and we just thought would that work you know could you describe everything in five steps so we rehearsed a few and i was thinking oh, that really works actually because there's it's not too many like we have like six seven eight steps it's too many and some things it's just hard to describe in three steps so we thought five well, it would have a repetitive pattern so you've got a familiarity on each page that and it just as a discipline in some cases to describe a procedure in five steps it just seems to work 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really does. It's fascinating. And so, yeah, so Walkthroughs 2 has come out. And did you say that, that you know, you're going to take this further? Have you got ideas for, for further Walkthroughs? Yeah, we've got Walkthroughs 3. We, we, right from the beginning, we, we said there would be three volumes because we knew that one, one wasn't enough. And then once we explored the second one, we thought, gosh, there's actually more than for two. So we thought, well, we can't, we don't want to make a massive book. We just see how it goes. So we did one, we, and then we just decided what to go into volume two. So next year we'll have written, by this time next year, we'll have volume three will be out and that'll be it. And we've decided not to do keep doing them because then you're just sort of defeating the object of a, a sort of a simple compendium of ideas. There'll just be three volumes, each of which kind of builds on the other. Uh, so they'll, they'll work together or individually. And uh, hopefully... You know that that would be that. But then what we're going to keep on doing it is working on the on the relationship with all the schools who have the materials, and more and more ideas are coming. Uh, like we're we're working on a big mapping at the moment with walkthroughs and the early careers framework, for example, which um, Emma Turner, who is a primary specialist, um, is working on with us, and and so the very sort of spin off projects from it, rather than more books. Yeah, yeah. So, so alongside the book, so so schools can is it a subscription model where sub schools sort of sign up to um, like a support package yeah. for like a year or, or a year or more? How does that work? Well, it's basically we call it subscription because we we weren't sure what else to call it, but essentially you buy access to slide decks that go with each walkthrough and videos and um, uh, various tools that we've devised. But you, once you have them, you have them forever. You, they're not. You don't have to keep paying. And um, so there's a there's a the first volume. Yeah. So that's basically what people do. They they get access to a website where they can access all the resources that we have there um, to use. You know, the, the the slides, for example, play on your phone, or, on, or you can project them as a training tool. And there are short videos I've made to explain all the walkthroughs, and people can watch those. And there are some sort of documents that people can write in reflections and use it for their coaching conversation so it's like a toolkit for running cpd and coaching systems in schools which allows them to have kind of conversations around the school which are all linked and with a common language rather than also disparate and based on what people think they remember from the training day kind of thing yeah, yeah, I like it. And so you, you sort of you go to lengths to explain that this is not, yeah, you're not, you're not saying like this is a rigid five step process for how to do X, Y, or Z, but it's like a, a starting point. Like you say, so you were talking about it as a as a frame for supporting instructional coaching. Yeah. So on all the pages in every book, it says adapt, and we developed we developed this adapt acronym, which we were quite pleased with because it's one of the word, one of the letters spells is A for adapt. So. Basically, we're saying we don't want it to be a load of checklists, but we want it to be like a, a, a structured guide to the idea. So lots of different teachers can take that idea and say, okay, but in my situation, it's like this. And in my situation, it's like this. But without constantly deviating so far from the original thing that it, it becomes meaningless. So adapt is an important idea that you take an idea and make it your own. And we, we can't encourage people to do that all the time. In fact, you just have to, to make any idea work, really. So that's an important principle for us that, the walkthrough is sort of like a core nucleus kind of definition from which you then springboard and and make sense of. Yeah, so and coaching is something which I think is gaining in uh, currency across the system. People are starting to think our sort of SLT 
learning walks and feedback and formal observation process maybe not the best way and maybe coaching and is a better way and and we're, we're encouraging people to move in that direction Right, I thought that concludes my uh, my examination of your publishing career to date. Um, it's fascinating, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where this where this takes you next. Let's let's put a pause in this for now. And uh, as you know, we like to find out about the guests on on the Rethink and Education podcast. And I'm really interested to hear about your own childhood, your own experience of school and later education. So. Um, what what are your memories of your childhood and your what was your experience of school? What kind of a student were you? Oh, it's interesting because I I, I I don't know. I quite a, like everyone. I suppose has slightly different experiences. I, I started off living abroad. I, 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 that was probably quite an informative process. So I lived abroad uh, in different countries until I was nine, um, I think, or eight. So the first few years of my life were we, we, my my parents were connected to the British Council, so and we lived in Ethiopia and then Iran and then Brazil, and so that was it. So I went to primary school, went to the British school in Rio for a couple of years. Right. So I remember, I remember learning to speak French there. I had French lessons in this class and, and and there. So that was that, that that's an interesting thing. So when coming back into England in 1974, it was sort of going to secondary school was slightly strange kind of experience and so at primary school i imagine it's not going to be the same as rio no but it was it was interesting it was like a, a new a new sort of setup and quite a significant thing that happened to me at, at, at primary schools i was i was moved up a year which is a very odd thing to happen but I, that's what that, that is quite an, a big influence and so uh, roughly equivalent of sort of being uh in year six because i'm about getting too boring about it it was schools changed from year seven to year eight. So secondary school started in year eight in those days. So it's a bit like I was in year six and I was put into year seven halfway through the year. Um, so I had this feeling, I had this experience of suddenly being, uh, of all my friends being in the year below me and then going to secondary school and not really knowing anybody. And um, that was quite strange. But uh, but uh, also always feeling like I was a slightly nerdy, spotty, spotty person. <laughs> because that's kind of how it was kind of seen like um yeah so what was the reason that you were moved up it was weird i mean the whole group of us took these iq tests at school so this is like a bit of a 70s thing and there were two of us were regarded as sort of problem children because they (laughs) we were seen as sort of freakishly uh, out of kilter with the rest of the the cohort so they thought the best way to deal with us was to put us up a year and you know we discussed it as a family and I, I, at the time, I, I think I was quite excited about it, but I don't think socially it helped us particularly. Um, it took me a few years to kind of really adjust to not feeling slightly younger than everyone, even though it's only a few months out in terms of birth time. But it, that sort of feeling of being slightly in the wrong wrong place, but kind of yeah. able to do the work. So it was it was it was it was interesting, and I guess in the end, it it made me. So I was always young. So I, I went to university when I was seventeen. Um, I felt I was teaching. I had a job, a full-time teaching job, when I was 21. So I was quite young all the time, and I, I think that's been that's why I've been. I, I was able to teach for so many years and still only be in my 50s because like, <laughs> I started right at the beginning. 
So that, that I think that was always a very uh, strong feeling I had all the time that I was kind of younger than my peers, you know. Yeah, a previous guest, that, that same thing happened to Kath Murdoch. She got moved up a year when she was in primary school and she hated it. She said that she sort of felt like a fish out of water and that she felt like she was supposed to be really smart because she'd moved up a year. And so then if she was struggling with something, oh no, was it Kath? I think it might have been Rachel McFarlane. I think it was Rachel um, who, um, yeah, she was like, I just, she really didn't like it because she felt like it sort of put a spotlight on her. And meant that she was had to bury it if she was if she ever found that she was really struggling with something. I don't know if you found something similar. I didn't really. I mean, I I actually I loved school. I mean, secondary school, I loved it. I loved the intellectual challenge of it. Um, and there was lots of bullying and stuff. I went to the local local school, but it was you know I live in Farnham in Surrey, so it's not not exactly the mean streets, but it, it was a local comprehensive. Yeah, school. I know Farnham. Yeah. it's a nice it's a nice leafy it's a nice town. But I still you know threatened with six inch nail for a bag of crisps at lunchtime that kind of stuff. So you know I had a few I had a few uh, you know in you know times where I was punched off my bike or you know there was there was it was you know some times where it was pretty rough I felt and the, some of the teaching methods were pretty intense you know in in terms of discipline and. But actually, there were some teachers in there who were just fantastic. So, I and I. So, what what kind of a school was this? It's a, it's a comprehensive school, eleven to sixteen. It still is a Wadham County High School in the in Farnham. It's a local comprehensive. Right. Okay. And, and I went to the six. It's a six form college kind of environment there. So we just went to the six form college, and I really loved that. So six form college to me was was really a great time because the diversity of people that you'd met and. I enjoyed that. So for me, so the, the the academic side of school was always really great. Um, but then you had other things on the side, those you know, like being in playing in bands and being involved in music. That was always something that was a, a, a big part of life. But so so I but but there are parts of the learning experience where it's really interesting now because I make you know a living writing and stuff. But I always find that in terms of maturation, so writing confidently writing really intentionally well found i've always found it much harder whereas maths and science was much easier for me to do well at having been sort of accelerated i always felt out of my depth in my english classes compared with other people um because it was just a, just a sophistication of language or so i felt like that probably if i'd stayed in the year below i would have found english even more enjoyable and i'd have been better at it probably Mm, yeah okay and so you say that you went straight into teaching out of uni what 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 prompted that and why is it that you didn't want to or did you think about becoming you know a working physicist i thought about it for a while i mean i was interested in in my final year at university i did this project on um, nuclear magnetic resonance and i designed this sort of specification for a a brain scanner you know that was in those and, and i was quite interested in that but then you know, the only way I could continue that was to move to Birmingham and not Manchester. And I loved being in Manchester and I didn't want to leave. So I was trying to think, well, how could I stay in Manchester for a bit longer? And um, then I saw this leaflet which said you could do a PGCE and get 1,500 quid extra to do physics or maths. And I thought, well, OK, I'll do that for a while, for a year and then I'll see how I feel because it would be something to do and I'd get paid a bit more to be a student. So I, I did it. And then when I did it, I actually 
enjoyed it. So I thought, well, I might as well do a job. I'd do it. I'd teach for a bit. And, and then when I actually got a job teaching, I really loved it. I loved the being a sixth form. So it, I kind of, that's, that's the way it worked. It was kind of just a way of staying in Manchester and, and doing other things I was enjoying there, like being involved in music and stuff. And then I went to this sixth form college in Wigan, which is just about reachable from Manchester. And I just, I just had the best time. They, they, they said in my interview, they said, okay, you, you can teach physics. That's great. What else can you do? Like, what would be your elective? What would be your um, cr- extracurricular thing? Cause it's in the timetable. It's not after school. It's like timetabled in. So I said, um, I don't know, I could do bands or, or breed video stuff. And they said, okay, we'll have to do both of those. <laughs> so it was on my timetable to do music production and video production as well as physics. I love that. So I used to every week teach kids how to use a recording studio. And I used to teach kids how to make videos with you know editing and stuff. It was great. And, and that was on my timetable in, in the day. Um, I, it was a real blessing. So I used to do, I used to do physics, maths, and then video production or something. <laughs> And that, that, I, that to me was, I learned a lot from doing that. Um, some fantastic experiences uh, of, of doing that. So that, that was a really good, nice job to start off with. Yeah. And so did you ever take a break from teaching or did you then stay as a teacher for the next, like, whatever it was, nearly 30 years or something? I, I took a one-year break. So after three years, I was, I, was 20, I was already, I was only 24, but I'd already been teaching three years. And I was thinking, I, I, I don't just want to do this the rest of my life. And I wanted to go backpacking. So me and my partner at the time we went off traveling for a year and we did that and that was great so and, and we, we spent literally a whole year traveling in southeast asia and china and stuff going on the trans-siberian train from beijing to moscow <laughs> in 1991 absolutely fantastic it was just that oh wow yeah. just just after the wall had come down totally yeah i mean we, we were arriving to moscow where a ruble was you could get like 50 rubles for a dollar. So you were like, <laughs> you could buy bottles of champagne for about 80p and stuff. It was just absolutely ludicrous. So we, we those are sort of amazing times. But then we came back into London and thought, right, I need to get back to work. So I became a supply teacher and then got 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 started working at Comprehensive Holland Park School and stuff. But that that was a return, yeah. So that but it was it was always just a I kind of at one point thought I'd, I fancied working for the BBC or something, but that was just too hard to get into. And then teaching was there. And then once I got into Holland Park, I just loved that place. It was just a magical kind of time with all the team of people that I work with. And I, I just loved the whole thing of running, a, working in a school with challenges and the whole sort of social aspect of that in terms of working with children and um feeling part of something that really mattered I, I i loved it so from then i knew i was just going to stay in teaching because i i thought holland park was taught me about kind of what really it was all about before that was just about teaching physics but then the whole wider context became very vivid when it when i was at holland park mm. so so as you know I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of significant learning which is uh, an idea that, that I first came off across in the writings of Carl Rogers, you know, the, uh, the person-centred, uh, the, you know, the, the guy who invented counselling, essentially, psychotherapist. And he, he talked about significant learning as being, you know, learning that, sh- that, that changes you in some way, you know, that shapes the behaviour of the individual or shapes how you think of yourself or how you think of the world, you know, learning that's, again, it's like this more expansive idea than the kinds of learning that we often talk about within the context of schools. Um, and so I'd be interested to hear 
whether there are any moments, and it sounds like Holland Park might be one of them. It sounds like you were potentially about to start talking about that then. Um, but can you think of any particular sort of moments that have really shaped your thinking along the way? And this could be outside of education. This could be, you know, about your thinking about life, the universe and everything. Or it could be, you know, that, that's really shaped your thinking about, about teaching and learning. Oh, well, there are lots of ones. I mean, I suppose arriving at Holland Park, uh, what we found there was um, that we were in, a, in this period which was emerging from the 80s, which had gone very kind of focused on social justice and so on, which wasn't a bad thing in Ilya at the time. But we, 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 it was a group of young teachers in, in Holland Park. We, we were, we felt we were. Sorry, just quickly. So, Ilya is the Inner London Education Authority. That's right. Is yeah, that right? Yeah. You're right. Okay. So, go on. So, we, we, we were slightly shocked by some of the attitudes around us from some of the teachers who've been there a while, where everything seemed to be about um, children. You know, people, people would actually say things like, like, um, how would you like it if you took a test and, and you couldn't do well? How would that make you feel? And we were thinking, this is so patronising. And, and, and there was this feeling that the, the school was getting, at the time that we were there, when I first arrived there, I think the figures were 17% of children got five GCSEs or more, like 17% above a C. And it, it, it was it was very, very, um, the, the, you know, middle-class children were not going to that school, uh, except in very small numbers. And those people were sort of parents who felt like they were warriors. You know, they were sort of social justice warriors who were putting their children into this tough school environment because of their beliefs. But they weren't being taught very well. It was actually like sink or swim. And sometimes you'd hold your, there were children there who were socially isolated because they were not, able and, and we just felt that the expectations of the children were just appallingly low and that and was was this within a sort of a very like laissez-faire like permissive progressive yeah sort of like um and, and was this was this something that was part of that wider thinking in Ilya at the time would you say I, th I think it was part of a kind of a need for, for for people to feel like there was a there was this sort of we, we used to say that the school was a 90 percent ethos 10 percent achievement because <laughs> It was like it doesn't matter if the kids do well or not, as long as they've um, sort of all bonded together and had this comprehensive experience. But it was so overblown, and we were saying, look, they, it's it's not even happening. Look at the playground; they're not all they're not all sort of mingling in some lovely hot, you know, um, melting pot of, of of communities mixing. You've got those Moroccan kids over there who are beating the crap out of those Afro Caribbean kids over there. And it's it's attritional, it's it's brutal, and there's lots of fights and it's violent and um and and the kids aren't doing any homework. And it, so that was really instruction. So there was a wave of people saying we need to get on top of this. And actually it felt like there's a whole group of us uh, at the time who were saying you know, we have to be much more disciplined about learning, about outcomes, about assessment, about standards, and that was the that was the that was the, the journey we were on. So changing, sort of saying that the, the values and ethos are great, but not at the expense of the achievement. And yes, it does matter if they pass their exams. So it's but so much time was mopped up in dealing with really tough day to day social deprivation. It was really incredible. Um, so. I, I, there was a boy called Leon in my tutor group, my first ever tutor group. It was a year seven tutor. He was, his, he had been brought up by his grandma because his mum died in childbirth. 
and she was illiterate and, and he was, and he was 11. And I remember him, he was the angriest young man I've ever met. And he would, sometimes he'd cry so hard, you know, because he's like, his life was so tough. It's, it's you well up just even remembering it, you know. Wow. And, and it's like, stuff like that, you think, you know, you don't, you don't come across kids like that. How can you not be able to read when you're 11 and, and, and be so angry? And I've met so many children who are just so angry. Yeah. And so that, that, that shapes you think, God, we've got to do something for these kids. And, and part of it is not just sort of putting our arms around them and saying, hey, guys, you're going to be fine. It's like we need to teach them. We need to teach them properly. <laughs> teach them how to read. Yeah. So, so there, there's, there are so many, and all of us, we used to go to the pub on Friday nights because the, the, the whole experience of, of being there was so intense. You'd just be absolutely sh- shredded, you know, by this emotional roller coaster of kids who were living through violence and bring it into the school it was like whoa <laughs> friday nights were like bloody hell thank god and it was that's what it was like so it was very bonding you felt like you were really in in the thick of it like the sharpest end you could imagine that's what it felt like then and um yeah so that that to me was very formative you know how do you get kids to who, who have this and then weirdly in that school you had kids who came like from embassies so you had these sort of lovely a-level students who came from like the the Ukrainian embassy or something. <laughs> it was just really good at maths. And uh, so you had this, the, you did have this sort of melting pot feeling. So it wasn't like, like it was like that every minute of the day, but so trying to morph the school into something which was achievement focused, that had a coherence to it was demanding, you know, so t- I, you learned so much from that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. So, so, I mean, you're, you're painting a picture of something that sounds like a really difficult, challenging place to work. And yet it seems like you found it more sort of like exhilarating, you know, and that it was actually energizing. And so so you were saying that there was a group of you within the school who were saying, actually, we need to we need to ramp up, <laughs> the, you know, what what the, you know, what we're doing for these kids. And so were you a part of a sort of a reform process that then happened at that school? I think so. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we were. I mean, I, it wasn't obviously it wasn't really just me, but it was it felt like at the time I was arriving, um, quite a few changes were, were coming into place and um, some leadership people were there who were changing things quite rapidly. And But we didn't have, like, behaviour management systems. It was brutal. So you, like, really felt like you were on your own in the class. Just there was no one to refer to. There was no on-call system. Uh, you couldn't get help um, if you were the kids were sort of destroying you or anything. It was, it was, it was quite isolating in that way. Um, so we had to the, the, things like behavior management systems have not been invented yet. So we had, uh, and, and also, um, but then you know, just things like GCSE uh, stuff was was starting to sort of kick in in a way which hadn't been there before. I, I just felt there was a whole lot of um, changes which were which were positive, and and even I, I got a job as a head of year, so it was my first sort of really proper leader proper leadership role. And the person I took over from, she just I was asking her about attainment data. We're saying she said attainment data. What's that got to do with us? <laughs> and I said, isn't that the job? She said, God no, you haven't got a time for that. You know, you'd be too busy just phoning up to make them come into school, and it's all about attendance. And I was thinking, okay, God, but I I just wanted to find out what their scores were, and um, so I busied myself talking to heads of department, and and I felt that that was a really important thing to do, and not see that as outside of my remit at all. And I loved that. I love this sort of feeling of owning a, the, having responsibility for 240. It's huge. 240 children in year seven and in 10 tutor groups. And um, 
trying to feel like I was their kind of key custodian in the school to marshal them through. And I loved it. I, I, it's an amazing uh, opportunity. I loved it. It's like, it was like running a, running a little school, but then you had all these teachers to talk to. And the, 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 the intellectual challenge and the emotional challenge of that was, was massively rewarding, but not, not easy. Yeah, yeah, I can see. So, so this, uh, and how long were you there for? I was there for seven years. Right. And then, okay. And then, and then by that, by that, and then I got a job as a deputy head, setting up a new school in Haringey. So that was like I wanted to take everything I'd learned from Holland Park and say, right, we're going to start a new school. So this, I was appointed to be the deputy head of a brand new school in Haringey, um, which opened um, on the ninth of the ninth 99 we were very proud of that in september 99 <laughs> and it was great i was only like early 30s but i was deputy head and because i was just year seven i learned so much so i had to teach had to be the network manager had to be in charge of behavior as well as the curriculum and do the timetable and i had to do everything uh, alongside the head so i loved it it was just a great another great job Mm, yeah okay so it sounds like like you know you're, you're talking about significant moments of significant learning you know just the, the the whole progression of your career is sounding like it's been it would fall into that are there any other sort of key moments that you think um stand out you, you said earlier that there, there are many that you can think of um well i mean i, I suppose um uh, well there, there are so many i mean i think i think one of the things i i, I learned to um Holland Park was that you know it, it is possible to, to to deal with children with all sorts of different backgrounds and, and mo- motivate them to work hard but you but the challenge is around uh, managing people so it, it the whole thing of ethos and and systems and and all of that having to go together so I learned a lot about that from a kind of leadership point of view and then going into the the new school there was this feeling of being able to start fresh each time, but even then inducting new teachers into the system all the time. But the, I suppose this whole idea of teaching to the top uh, had, had really come to me. Like when I, what I learned at Holland Park was you have to pitch it up. You know, you've got these children who are coming to our school expecting to be challenged. And the worst thing you can do is, is make them feel like they're under challenged. And that was the feedback we had. So you had all these parents who were, wanting the school to succeed, wanting the school to be great. But they were saying <laughs> that they would sometimes show you, as a head of year, you'd pick this up, and then uh, temporarily, I was, a short term, I was an assistant head there as well. And, and people would say, look, this, is, this isn't great. Look at what you're doing. This is my child. This is their education. And it's just not good enough. And you'd think, no, it isn't. And so that, that, that thing of expectations being low and the teachers being the ones allowing their expectations to drop because of the challenges they face sort of towards the lower end, it convinced me that you have got to, to pitch it up. And that's what we went into. So the reason I love working with uh, Rod's husband, Ros Hudson, who's the head at Alexandra Park School, uh, was that we both had exactly the same attitude. It's absolutely sky-high expectations, pitch it up, you know, books which are challenging, curriculum which is challenging, and that's the goal. It's a constant mission to push ch- students and I felt I, I really think that's important that, that that sense of it matters. We we've got we're on a mission, and children shouldn't be allowed to underachieve because our expectations are too low. So I, I think that probably have, uh, that's what Holland Park told me more than anything else is that it's not it's just not okay to allow people to just say, "Oh, poor kids, they're a bit poor. Let's just be a bit soft on them." It's just that it, 
we just be blood boilingly angry about some of the attitudes you'd have come across there from some teachers. They, they really just, and not, of course, that wasn't all of them, but there were people who literally explicitly say those sorts of things. And it was, yeah. it was quite shocking. Yeah, yeah. This is something that's come up again on the podcast before about, you know, unconscious or sometimes actually explicitly conscious biases and low expectations that that teachers have sometimes had for their young people. And they say, oh, that's all well and good, but not for these kids, you know. Yeah. Uh, these kids need something else. And sometimes it sort of comes from a good place. Sometimes they're saying like, we don't want to be imposing middle class values on working class kids and making out like it's all about going to university when we know that actually, you know, that might not be in their future. And so you can sort of see where it can, it can sometimes come from a good place, but you can also see how it can be quite pernicious. And I, I, this is this was one of the first ever blogs I think that I came across of yours was talking about this idea. It was it's called teaching and uh, gifted and talented provision a total philosophy. Yeah. Because um, I was a I was a gifted and talented coordinator for a while for my sins, and it was never a very well worked out policy agenda. It's just like the, idea, the whole idea of 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 you know creating special provision for gifted and talented kids which was defined as like the top 10 percent performing it just seemed like it wasn't ever very well thought out and nobody could ever really explain even what they meant like what what is gifted and what is talented and what's the difference i would hear like a hundred different explanations for that and i never got to the bottom of it and your blog was one of the first things that i sort of thought yeah, I can I can get behind this. You were talking about, you know, gifted and talented. It's like it's about setting a standard and, and making it so that everybody can meet that. You know, so differentiation isn't like differentiating down and just giving some kids without filling the blanks to do. Yeah. Right. When other kids are doing, you know, extended writing. It's like what support do you do do each of you need to reach this standard? Exactly. And and I feel like that's partly reflecting my own experience at school, like the thing of being moved up a year and so on, that you feel like and it did that work in itself <laughs> because you know that that sort of like if, if I'm in the if I'm if I'm in the right sort of stream or band then I'll be sorted. But actually, that even that doesn't necessarily work. You know, you have to be taught in a certain way. Um, and so I, I agree with this whole G and T thing. And, and it, it, I still think it's something we're 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 working through as a system. Um, you don't want special treats for children who are. Uh, because they're high attaining, you want that to be for everybody. But at the same time, there is a divergent range of, of attainment by a certain point. Uh, but you, is there are some things that some students are able to access, and shouldn't they therefore have the opportunity to do that? So I feel like it is it is quite complicated. But I, the way I always think of it is, like you say, there's some, there's a whole culture of celebrating excellence and never saying kids are sort of nerdy or whatever, it's all about celebrating intellectual curiosity as being a good thing. But then you have to do have to have some set piece opportunities which are allowing certain students to be more independent, perhaps. So because otherwise you just, it is just difficult. I mean, I think the ideal is, is important, but then the reality is teaching a whole range of students at the same time is complex. So you, you have to have a range of ways of, of meeting the needs of those higher attaining students. But I do think as a parent, you're entitled for your child who's highly you know, is very knowledgeable and high attaining to go to a school at any place and never feel held back. I, I really think that's an important thing. And if there's any sense that they're kind of waiting for everyone else to catch up with them and treading water, then, then that's not fair on them and they shouldn't have to have that experience. So teachers need to be bolder about allowing children to push ahead. And that's, that's sometimes hard for teachers to kind of deal with. 
who wants to, I used to say this to teachers, you know, in, in my schools, like, imagine being the teacher who, when the kid comes home from school, is saying, oh, God, it's so boring in their lesson. It's so easy. You know, you don't, why would you want to be that teacher? So find out who those children are and then stretch the hell out of them. And so they love you. And they say, oh, I love that teacher. It's so interesting. <laughs> you want those, that's what you want those kids to think of you. So make sure that you are that teacher. And that is definitely within teacher's power. Mm. Yes, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, is there anything else in when we're, we're on significant learning? Are there any sort of key moments that you think have really, you know, been pivotal for you or have shaped you in some way? Um, I, I think there have been some uh, moments around aspects to do with um, behaviour management and stuff where I've had like some really, really bad experiences with that and feeling like there's a whole emotional aspect to behaviour management, which I feel is under-discussed uh, at schools and we're sort of almost not supposed to have those feelings, but I think they're all different sorts of people. And as a person, just from growing up at school and then being a coming a teacher, some teenagers and the way they interface with you um, can be brutalising. And I do feel like I, I always get absolutely furious with people who are negative about behaviour management systems which allow teachers to feel relaxed, safe, um, confident and teach and children feel the same even though they're a bit sort of don't like the sound of it when actually without those things teachers would be being brutalized every day children would be anxious about going to school and there's a lot of horrible low-level bullying and, and disruption going on day after day after day and that is a reality and some people who I think you've never worked in a school like that have you you don't know what it's like mm. And I actually think sometimes I go to some schools, I think, thank God you guys are here because look at you in that class, which is tough and you're doing the business. And thank God you've got that behavior system backing you up, which you appreciate. And people are saying, oh, they shouldn't be like that. And have no idea. And I, and I really think that. So, And I've had that experience of being someone who was like absolutely ruined by classes and not knowing what the hell to do about it and not knowing who to turn to and feeling like it was like a, a failure of my part. But actually you think, no, I shouldn't have to feel like this. And, and I feel that's true of lots of teachers. Like it's sort of, they're poor. Like there's too much pressure put on them to be superhuman emotionally in the face of some quite demanding situations, including sort of, and I don't just mean, sometimes it's like just like just getting the class to listen kind of feeling like that's, but, it, but sometimes it's actually threats and violence as well. And I, I don't want to exaggerate that, but I've had four or five very dangerous incidents in my time where I actually thought I was going to get stabbed or uh, and stuff like that. And you think, God almighty, this is this is the proper front line, you know, it really is. It's not this isn't a game. Yeah, yeah. I I um have also worked in schools like that that have been, you know, very challenging behaviorally, kids shout, shouting at you to f off, squaring up to you when you can see that they've lost it. Sometimes they're towering over you and you think, "Oh, actually, this is really not okay." And you report it, you know, and the kids backing your lesson that afternoon sort of thing. Um, and it's horrendous that sense that you're sort of powerless when when teachers are being undermined by uh, senior leaders when they they're, they're not believed or they're sort of sometimes undermined in front of the kids. You know, like like it's like the opposite of, of it's not even like that. There's no behavior system. It's like there's just a really unhelpful one. So I totally I totally hear what you're saying, um, and I agree. You know, lots of the people who talk about you know we should have no exclusions and so on. 
um you know it's it's easy it's easy to say and of course you know the word exclusion is a heightened emotive word but you're right you know when you've worked in those very challenging circumstances you can see the need for um for discipline and for for systems and sometimes to remove kids from lessons and to remove them from schools and uh, and that's that's a really hard thing to do isn't it i'd be interested to hear i don't know if you're happy to talk about this but but so so because i remember reading about when you went to was it called highbury grove the, the yeah. school in in um north london and i remember reading about like you were sort of bringing in a, a behavior management system there that was you know trying to sort of to get on top of of behavior what was your experience with that yeah i mean it's still <laughs> It's all these things where it was it was hard. I mean, I, I if I'd known the school was needed that sort of a level of behaviour management system, I don't think I would have chosen to go there. But I, I kind of was under the impression it wasn't like that, and I, I don't know why. And I was kind of kidding myself probably, but I wouldn't have nominated myself to be um, I'm the person to run a, a, a difficult behaviour system. But it was evident to me that it was needed because. I mean, I remember we, we introduced some basic rules around some lesson behaviours and so on. And I remember one of this, this geography teacher saying to me, um, well, I remember one day talking to some children in a corridor and they said, and I was just in my first couple of weeks, and they said, well, sorry, it's good to talk to you, sir, but I'm supposed to be in lessons. <laughs> and I just said, oh, God, I thought it was break <laughs> because there were so many children on the corridor. I literally thought it was break time. <laughs> and I, and I, I thought, you're kidding, this is this is lesson time. And I thought, oh my God, yes, it is. And, it, that, and and then another teacher said that we introduced these sort of systems and that he said there were these light, these sen- movement sensor switches for the lights in the corridor. And he said to me, do you know, the lights have gone off in the corridor for the first time. And I've been here for three years. I didn't know they did that. <laughs> because it meant that there was always, there were, so, <laughs> there were so many children on the corridor the whole time that they'd never gone off because um, there was always movement. And stuff like that, it was like, but the problem was that it was the scale. It, we hadn't quite got on top of it. So you'd have a sort of detention system where, you know, certainly things would trigger a detention, but then you end up with like a couple hundred kids in detention. It's like, literally, you think, bloody hell. So even in my feeling I needed to do this, I, I don't think I ever got to the point, I was only there two years, but it, it was just, we were in that process of working out what the right balance was of, strict and absolute and no excuses and there's a trigger which would leave us some improvement and then hitting the wall of children who just couldn't cope with that and were then like bouncing around and exclusions uh, being an issue and we're trying to like resolve all this stuff and deal with some very needy children who we just didn't know what to do with them so there were children who you think they're only in year eight so we <laughs> they're not kind of they're not sort of malicious they but where are we going to put them because they literally can't sit in a class. I mean, they come out of the class the whole time. They they just walk out. They disrupt the lesson constantly when they're in there. So we put them in a small unit, but then how long for? And then who with? Because if they're in with these sort of very shy children who are also got there because of the learning needs, then they disrupt that learning as well. So we had like about eight or ten children in year seven and eight who just felt like, what? where do these children go in the system? Because they they don't qualify for special school. They're not right they're not going to permanently exclude them and go to the pru they just we just couldn't find the right provision and they were so different in their needs and uh, it, it, so we were wrestling with this constantly of this sort of tension of high high volume detentions and then that was 
kind of quite attritional to follow up. Um, and then we have this whole issue of if they decide not to go to the detention, what do you do? <laughs> it, 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 honestly, yeah. And, and actually, I, I mean, I know this that people who are still involved in that, they, they, it's it's just the, the issues are still the same, and the same social pressures are there, the same dynamics of very very wealthy families mixing in with children who are like uber deprivation all in one melting pot means you've got so many competing voices sort of shouting at you saying i want the school to be all liberal and fun and now you've killed the joy and other people are saying it's still really dangerous and i'm scared i'm not feeling safe on the corridors and it's like oh god so we do we lock the school down do we free it up and i, and I just was constantly wrestling with that and and then and didn't manage to resolve it in time to, for the school to feel like it has moved on but those problems were already there when i arrived it was just that yeah so the, the, that's a that's a tough scenario. So that, that so I'm very sympathetic to anyone who runs a very tight ship with strong discipline, and the the kids are learning and the kids the teachers feel safe and happy. And I think if you've managed to do that, I almost don't care how because total respect to you. That's what you've had to do, and you didn't take that decision lightly, and you did something I wasn't able to do. So good for you, you know. And that's how I feel about it. And so don't get in the way of someone who's trying to do that. I would say to anybody, even if you're slightly uncomfortable with some of the choices that had to be made, they trust those people. They had to make those choices. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this gets so much heat, doesn't it, yeah. online, and you and you can see why. And and it's you know it's so so hard to do what you were trying to do because you were coming into an existing school where the kids were had you know were behaving habitually in ways for example when the bell goes you don't have to go to your lesson you know they'd learned that behavior and that had become a norm for them and the teachers were used to working in that way and you know when you, if you start uh, with this, with a new school like in year seven that you were talking about and everybody's on board with this new way of working and everybody agrees that they're going to do things in a particular way and they've been recruited with that in mind and the kids and the parents already know then it's going to be so much easier to establish a new way of doing things but when you go into a school where you know you we see these headlines every September, don't we? You know, like and then people are mocking it and saying, you know, head teacher is you know um, hauled over the coals for for having school rules, um, and sometimes it seems arbitrary, doesn't it? You know, I remember like at my school, the top button, like having your top button done up, was was a thing, and it sort of just felt like just a bit like. You know why? Why join the line there? You can understand why that <laughs> yeah. why those decisions are made. Sometimes you like if 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 the conversation is about doing your top button up, it's not about the fact that you're throwing chairs around or the fact that you're you know it's like the broken windows theory, isn't it? And one one of the things that you know in terms of behaviorism that I found works is you know late is late and a late is an automatic sanction. So if you're late to my class, you have a detention, and that 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 mops up ninety percent of, of of kind of casual sloppy punctuality because the kids don't want the attention so they just make sure they're on time and it, it just works it, and it does because and it keep, it, it then develops the habit we're always on time and we don't push it to the limit because what's the point of being 10 seconds late and getting a detention you just make sure you're on time you, you self-regulate and it becomes a habit and that's, that's not that's not draconian you don't want each teacher every lesson going oh just about late where are you late and making a choice you're just saying the bell's gone you're late that's it and it, it, there's a clarity there, and the children respond to that, except like five children who don't. <laughs> so you have to deal with them. But the fact that the majority do is very, very important. It just changes the culture. So those sorts of absolutes, I think, are, are useful. Um, but 
but I, I think there are some subtleties around that. And for me, one of the biggest issues I still I still sort of have cold sweats about is trying to do trying to do too many agendas at once. So one one of the examples I give you is <laughs> we're trying to be sort of super sound in a, in a way which is you know totally sincere around say. Um, uh, LGBTQ and transgender awareness and so on. And so we wanted to have uh, uh, toilets which are sort of gender neutral. And, and, and that, was, that was lobbied for by a qualities group that we had of students, student-led with some teacher representation. And they, they presented this to the SLT and said that we want to have gender neutral, some gender neutral toilets. And so we thought, yeah, why not? I mean, how could you stand in the way of that? And but then what happened is that we didn't have the behavior culture ready to accept that. And so we, we had this idea that it was a cool thing to do, a good thing to do, a right thing to do. But we didn't have the behavior culture embedded enough to sustain it. So what happened is that in those toilets, you had you started getting behaviors which were you needed sort of almost totally constant teacher supervision because the students weren't used to it and they hadn't got they hadn't accepted it as a as a community. And so you'd have inappropriate behavior and i think why we, we weren't we, i should have been able to say i like the idea but we're just not ready for it yet when i didn't say that i was thinking i was too hasty to say oh yeah i want that that sounds great we should be doing the right thing and that type of decision you feel like you've got competing agendas i haven't got the capacity in the staff to supervise the, that toilet all day long i just don't and so i've created a toilet which for some children feel unsafe in that which previously they didn't yeah just so that of say hey look at us we've got transgender toilets <laughs> transgender or gender neutral toilets even used the language wrong there but you know what i mean and there were some trans trans kids in the school and i didn't make their lives any better i made them worse so that's no good is it it's like so you're sort of trying to fumble your way through things and i just think i just wanted to try to do too many things at once just trying to be too clever probably and, and just shouldn't have even you know what I mean? You just need to be more measured and steady with some of these things. And I think I was too rushing into sort of change the curriculum, try to do this, try to do that. And all of it was a bit of, in the end, a bit of a jumble of too many agendas and none of them really kind of absolutely heading home yet. So it didn't all kind of sing together in the time that I was there. I see. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. And it's, it's classic leadership lessons in there, I think. Yeah. What was that book by Vivian Robinson about like reduce change? to increase improvement or something like that yeah um i think there's some wisdom in that and, and like you say you know you can it would be really hard to to meet with that equalities group in the senior team who put together a really you know thoughtful presentation and then say sorry not 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 at the moment like it would be a, it would be a tough a tough call to make that and you can see, yeah, you can see how this how this can easily sort of, and you know, it, that's on a larger scale. The same sort of thing can happen within the classroom, can't it? Where the teacher's saying yes to too many things. And, and then, and then in terms of like, <laughs> I remember this. It makes me laugh, but it's kind of not funny, really. But I, I remember this year eight boy showing some parents around for an open evening, and we had him introduce these uh, gender neutral toilets. And and he said um, he was showing his parents around, and he stood in front of these toilets, and he said. Yeah, because it's, it's all right if you're gay and everything in our school because we've got special toilets for you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, God. We're, not, not our message. We're not. We're not <laughs> there's so many issues with that, what you just said there. But he, he means <laughs> well, we meant well, but we're stuffing it up. This isn't working. You know, we, we need to get our language right. And, he, you know, it's like you think, oh, okay. And, and the parents were good. They were sort of saying, you know, I can see what you're trying to do there. But that wasn't quite what we needed to hear. But anyway. <laughs> 
Right. So, so um, it seems like we've merged into the to the rethinking education part of the conversation, which is great. Essentially, there's three sort of headings that we that we organise this part of the discussion under: positives, challenges, and fixes. So let's start with positive stuff. What do you see um, in your travels? And I know that you, you now that now that things are opening up again, you've already been out and about. I saw that you were all over the country this week. Um, what do you see happening when you're out and about in these schools that you think is brilliant and really positive and that you're really excited about and that you would like to boost the signal of or see more of? I think there's, there's the whole uh, engagement of teachers with thinking about evidence uh, and research and just ideas that have come through from cognitive science and some other things just to, just that general level engagement and, and people reflecting on what learning there is and how to do it better for me that's just amazing I mean it's and it's nothing like what it was like when I started teaching it's like a world away so the fact that the community of teachers fueled by social media and um, that, that sense of on a national scale teachers are able to communicate I feel that's incredible I, I think it's the best time there's ever been to be a teacher in that regard it's it's dynamic it's buzzy there are inspiring people all over and i just think it's a great great atmosphere and, that, and a collective spirit which i find constantly inspiring i love it so I, I find that all the time even though some of the challenges are real and you could argue about some government policies or whatever the fact that i think the teaching profession is incredibly dynamic in england uh, and and i say in england because that's the system that we're talking about um, and, and to the point where it's looked to from outside. So whenever you talk to international schools and so on, they're always uh, sort of taking people from England to sort of bring those ideas in. It's not like we're importing ideas too many from outside. And, and that's coming from within the profession rather than at a policy level. So I think that's just absolutely sensational. And the other thing I'm really excited to see is leadership cultures shifting towards um, sort of or shifting away from kind of accountability-driven systems towards more putting staff first and instructional coaching and this sort of investment in people kind of approach, uh, which I find really great to see. So I see that more and more. You know, the fact that we're, you know, if you go, if you go back to, say, late 2000s, uh, you know, graded observations, lots of top-down initiatives, um and, and all that kind of stuff. I, I think there's schools where that's just, and, and loads of marking and all that kind of stuff. Now you've got schools where the marking load has gone down, the assessment load has gone down, they've got coaching going on, they've got loads of CPD. Uh, and I just think that's also exciting to see. So I, those two things for me go together, but they're, that, that I just feel like how great to come into the profession at this time and be entering when all that stuff is happening. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, you know, when you look at the, like, the the appalling figures around, like, teacher retention, you know, there's a lot of ex-teachers in this country. And I can't, I can't remember what the statistics are, but it's something like, is it about 50% of teachers leave within the first five years? Um, it, it's not good. And the, and the two things that they most often cite are behaviour and workload. And I wonder whether that's, you know, this is going to turn it around. Like you were saying, that the workload and, you know, people having a lot, like lots of schools are moving away from very onerous written marking policies and they're working in these places where behaviour systems are, you know, more well-established and 
teachers feel free to teach their lessons and there's less of that sort of conflict and thinking like you say you know when the kids are when you're working in a school that doesn't have those systems and the kids are all piling in late and you think I'm just going to make work for myself if I'm going to set them all the detention and then like you say follow it up if they don't turn up and you're on the phone and you're like life's too short and so you just sort of it's very easy to get overwhelmed and you can see why why it is that that um that so many teachers vote with their feet. Mm. Um, so I wonder whether I don't know whether you see any early signs of this. Do you do, do you get a sense that this that these two these twin sort of agendas that you're talking about uh, might help to turn the tide in terms of teacher retention? I think, so. I, mean, I, I think the statistics are more like I mean I think you could probably look this up, but I think it's somewhere like sixty. It used to be like seventy one, seventy two percent retention after five years. Now it's more like sixty seven percent. It's like it is going down. It, it, and that's the sort of level. When I feel like now, I mean, I'm hearing anecdotally of of schools where they, they're getting like 30, 40, 50 applicants for a job to teach history in a secondary school, that kind of thing, in some areas. So I do think there's a, it's harder to get into teaching. You're hearing of NQTs who can't find, you know, sort of a teacher training team placements who can't find permanent jobs and stuff. And I sort of think that's, that's not great for them individually, but as a system, it's a good thing because it means there's more competition for places which means that there must be more people coming into the profession, and so you've got a higher threshold of selection. And I, I think those sorts of things are maybe I don't know if that's a trend. It's so hard to tell. So I can't I can't really tell. I, I know that some teachers, some individual schools report to me. Like I asked them, you know, some of the schools I work with, they, they definitely have had lower turnover than they've had in previous years because of certain things that they've they've introduced. So turnover isn't necessarily between within schools. It isn't necessarily always a negative. Sometimes people move on for opportunities and stuff. So, but generally, yeah, it's a good thing. It is a good thing. But I, so I, I feel it's hard to know, isn't it? There's data. There's probably you've got your anecdotal feeling of it, but then there's going to be some evidence out there. But I, I, I feel like I don't know. I mean, there are other reasons, there are economic factors and stuff, aren't there, and which move people in and out of teaching, which can sometimes override the actual conditions in the schools. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It, it might be it might well be too soon to tell because I think that these are quite recent developments. But I agree. You know, the embrace of research and evidence, and lead, leaders moving away from from very sort of onerous top down accountability, silly ideas like performance related pay, yeah, um, and and graded lesson observations are going out of fashion fast. And uh, long may they remain in the in the basement yeah. of the museum of Definitely. historical um, bad bad policies. Uh, anything else um, in the positives column? Uh, well, I, I also think the whole movement around curriculum is just uh, absolutely brilliant. I mean, I, I feel like I'm having some of the best conversations I've ever had with teachers, uh, where we're talking about what to teach, why we teach it, how to make the curriculum have uh, you know a, a, a kind of more diverse. Uh, set of perspectives which books should we read more awareness of sort of vertical curriculum knowledge through a primary school so they're starting to be aware of the science curriculum being having a flow rather than just being the topics they were teaching and the fact that people are asking you to say can we do a session on science at key stage two or that, that, that there's a kind of appetite now oh you could say it's driven by uh, inspection but and sometimes it is but but I just think that's a growing trend. So I, I do these events called, called Curriculum Thinking Masterclasses that Mary Meyer and John Thompson and I put together. And the demand for the tickets from those every time is absolutely ridiculous. It's like, wow, there's a first. People will hang off every word of Christine Council or Mary Meyer or, and lots of other people who we invite to, to join us 
because they're so interested in this whole thing of the possibilities for the curriculum. Um, and I, I think that's absolutely brilliant that people are having those conversations in a way which was not happening so so widely uh, before, probably, I, I don't think. Yeah, 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 I agree. While we're on curriculum, do you want to do a quick plug for the EduGive thing in October? Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so this is a, a, a thing I, I realised because of the demand for these events that we could use them the idea to raise money. So uh, working with my daughter, actually, who's a, a student, um, but we, we were trying to think of a fundraising way. And so we've set up an event on the 1st and 2nd of October called EduGive UK, and it's going to be sort of 25, 25 to 30 webinars, which are sort of half an hour, 35 minutes long. Some will be live, some will be recorded. And you'll be able to get a package of, of videos of all of these webinars for £50. And all of that money will go to support Fair Share. So, and we're going to be sponsored by John Cat and some other people to sort of pay for them, the, the ticket fees and stuff. But so if you pay £50, you'll get 25 webinars of high quality cpd input for your school and all of that money will go to fair share so we're hoping to i don't know sell at least 500 tickets and raise twenty-five thousand pounds or maybe more that's 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 what we're trying to do yeah that would be amazing and so fair share is the like the food poverty charity isn't it that that marcus rashford has been very involved with around uh you know school free school meals and and um holiday hunger and all that stuff yeah we thought that would be that's that's Exactly. We'll be coming up to half term then. And it, it's, you know, the demand just is a big, big news last year. But like all these things, you know, they the issues are still there even after they've had their high profile moments. So already we've had loads of people sign up. We've got a great lineup of people talking and um, we're still putting that together. But already we, we're we um, selling tickets. So we, I think we've already raised £2,000, which I'm very excited about. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's wonderful. And I saw you did something similar off the back of all of the the, the, the success with Rose and Shine. I saw that you made a, a hefty donation to Fair Share previously, you know, which was great that you were, you know, you, you found yourself, you know, riding this wave, but you wanted to, to spread some of it around. Yeah, it was actually for Shelter. We did it for Shelter then. Yeah. So oh, we, that was we, right. Shelter. We, we did, I did two events, um, which were before lockdown. So they were in-person events and um, all the money that we, we the, the money we made went to shelter so we raised ten thousand pounds for shelter that was great again so you know once you get um a hundred people paying a hundred pounds that's like ten thousand pounds i was thinking okay they're prepared to do that so i'll give it to somebody and and because it's on the back of something which i kind of fluked into so i felt like that was an appropriate (laughs) thing to do yeah that's wonderful okay so so let's move into challenges by the way i'll put a link to the edugive thing oh, uh, in the show notes in case anybody's interested um it's going to be a wonderful event so let's move into challenges what do you see as being the big fish what what do you think given all of this this very you know um healthy stuff that you've been talking about what do you see as the the major challenges that we face and this could be you know when i talk about these conversations this could be at the level of policy it could be at the level of you know like classroom management it could be somewhere in between you know so you can we can take this in any direction that you want to take it in but what do you see as the the major things that we need to get right that we're not currently doing i think there are um a couple of things one of them is I still I feel like our accountability structures aren't right, and I, f- I feel like our system at, at, in secondary education is is too 
strongly orientated towards uh, 16 students taking a whole ton of exams and then going to something else. And so it's not aiming at the end. So I'm going to talk about solutions. I mean, which I, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of the idea of having a baccalaureate going to 18, but I feel like there's, we, we've got this structure, which is have lots of effects. It's, it affects curriculum design lower down the school. It affects um, progression beyond it. And it creates this incredible kind of like volume of effort around the end of year 11, which I think is distorting and unhealthy because of the scale of it. But that doesn't mean I think exams in themselves are problematic or there shouldn't be exams. It's just that I think there are too many and I think they're, they're at the wrong plot, the wrong point. So I think that's one thing. And also then there's an accountability culture beyond that through inspection and progress and data, which I think is also excessive. And I feel like we our accountability system generally is excessively punitive and doesn't allow all, all schools to thrive. So I'd say one of the one of the things I just think is is an absolute and just out it's an outrage in our system. I really do is that we we grade schools inadequate, including their leaders and teachers in them. And um, I, I just think that, that the fact that we even use that language about people and schools is a, is, a, is an is an atrocity. And I, I, I when people justify, it, I just think you might you're basically saying let's put people's heads on a stick for public humiliation and and, and be happy about it because that's essentially what you do yeah and i and i feel that, that the fact that we tolerate that in our system that we have this idea that if you that if you're not good enough you deserve to be shamed up in front of everybody is <laughs> is a bizarre and and counterproductive and it affects lots of other schools who aren't even remote the close to that because they're so afraid of the humiliation and the shame of of being shown up in front of the whole community as being inadequate, they do all these prefer, perverse things to avoid that, which aren't necessarily even ch- choices they would make otherwise, and they don't even need to be responding in that way. So for me, that 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 we should be stripping that all the way. If it was down to me, we wouldn't have we wouldn't grade schools at all. We would have p- schools that were known by trusted professionals who were holding to the account through the discussion and pushing them to change or improve. But you wouldn't have this sort of public accountability in that way. You'd have reports to parents about what schools were doing, challenges they were experiencing and solutions that are proposed, and you could give information to parents. But the idea that you can meaningfully line up school X in Somerset with school Y in um, Wakefield and say, we think they're roughly on a par against some scale. I just think it's the most ludicrous farce of, of validity. There. And, we, and we, 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 we live with it because, Ofsted say, parents like it. <laughs> parents don't know any different because that's what they've been fed for 20 years. It's the only, it's the only reality they know. But actually, yeah. it's meaningless and toxic. So I, I feel really strongly about that. You know, it's, it's just not healthy and... The, the, it's only people who benefit from it that allow it to persist. So if you're all the king of the hill and you you praise your outstanding and all that, you you love that and the kudos of it, and you lord it over other people. Yeah. So for me, that kind of um, I sometimes character, characterize it as a kind of the big cojones, big, big cojones kind of attitude, the kind of the Michael Wilshaw kind of bully boy rhetoric. I just think it's an absolute disgrace. I really do. Yeah, yeah, I a hundred percent agree. It is ridiculous, and like on so many levels, it's like um, 
yeah, the, just on a, on an ethical level, it's like just to, yeah to grade somebody as inadequate is is profoundly just not okay. Um, and it creates all these perverse sort of like consequences. So, you know, like, like it makes things a lot harder for those schools that are in those positions to recruit, to recruit kids, to recruit parents. And so it makes it like even harder for those schools to 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 improve and to do what it needs to do, that what they need to do. And, and, and like you say, you know, if you know the slightest thing about social science, like the methodology is just doesn't stand up to to the slightest scrutiny. And have you ever seen that graph? Do you remember there was that blogger Jack Marwood who had a blog for a while called Icing on the Cake. I don't know if he's still still around. Um, and he had he did some really interesting analyses where he was looked, like plotted like um, Ofsted grades. So there was like the, each school was the, the the two plots was prior attainment like uh, entry to the school. So I guess it was like Key Stage 2 SATs and then GCSEs. And it forms a pretty tight correlation. You know, prior attainment is a strong, really strong predictor of future attainment. And then they colour-coded the dots according to what Ofsted grade they got at their last thing. And just like, all the outstanding and good grades were just like from schools where kids had high prior attainment. And so it's yeah, like saying, you know, like it's re like just really outrageous and really unhelpful and and so so how, how what would be your fix to this if you were to if you were to um to step i know you had a conversation with daniel merce recently if you were to to step into ofsted um tomorrow let's say that 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 uh, opportunity came knocking what would you do <laughs> sack everyone what have you done why am i here no I, 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 I so let's say i actually think um i mean there needs to be an assistant. But I, I'd say, um, so for example, one of the things I think that we've got, say, local authorities and non-academy trusts, and you can debate whether they should still exist or not uh, separately, but you've got authority or, or local bodies that know the schools well. And I think Ofsted should focus on making sure that those sort of local level structures uh, are working well and, and should uh, in, in check that they've got internal accountability procedures and um, ways of, of tackling underperformance and, and and so on. But then within that system, like a multi-academy trust would be striving for excellence and that would be to do with understanding what standards are and you've got certain outcomes, you've got examinations and, you know, in the ideal world, some sort of baccalaureate pass rate or whatever. You've got internal data you understand, but you've also got evaluations of quality of curriculum and students' experience, which you know is, is good. And I think also should focus on making sure local systems have got good processes in place and share, and do what, what one thing they do do well is share practice. So this is what an excellent curriculum might look like. Look at these primary schools, look at the science curriculum, look how they've managed with limited resources to deliver this incredible music and arts programme and share, share and showcase and, and celebrate. But I don't think, this idea of an inspection model or two-day visit, I, I just think it's a house of cards of validity. I think that's an absolute joke. The idea that you, if you look at how many things are, are covered in an inspection, it's outrageous. Just even things like challenging the more able or dealing with pupil premium and disadvantage or reading. Even inspectors I know, I've met them, they just say it's a kind of joke, really. You go in, by break time on the first day, you've kind of guessed what the grade is and you spend the rest of the time kind of proving that you're right. They tell me that themselves. They're like, And then you're spending half the time typing because because you've got to get it all finished by the end of the two days. Yeah. It's a whole farce of, of a thing that we, we allow to persist. It just shouldn't happen. So for me, I just get rid of inspection completely. And I just get 
schools to be known by people close to them who see them progress from week to week, month to month. And at the level of knowledge of that, so I would have some teams who know what the multi-academy trusts do in each region and know what the local authority, where it still exists, where they, how they operate, because that's a manageable number of organisations to get to know well. But I think Ofsted isn't close enough to a school to really know how well that school is and what it's like. Yeah, it, it's just, There's just too many schools for them to realistically do that. So we've created this thing. So I'd axe it. I'd axe inspection completely. But I'd still, and I'd develop accountability in that in that way. And I, it, it's not like the accountability goes. And I'd start having reports which are based on um, a, a report which is a bit like I would say with instructional coaching like, that is agreed by the school and the, and the people so that the school's voice in their own self-evaluation is absolutely at the front and centre, validated by the people who know them and are comparing. And that's where we do things. This is what we are dealing with. This is what we're good at. This is what we're working on. And that's what parents get as information. Grading would disappear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. And and it's sort of obvious, isn't it? When you when you put it in this way, like um the, there's there's only one Ofsted and there's thirty thousand schools and there's no way that they can know them all well enough. And some of the schools go years or even decades without being inspected because they're deemed to be good or outstanding and that they don't need it. And so the accountability, it's not like it's like it's bad accountability, like the accountability just isn't there. No. You know, I've I've known of a number of schools where the head teacher has been really serious problems in terms of like the head behaving just like in, in, in inappropriate ways and everybody's like this this is not okay, like the, the whole senior team is falling apart. This is a dysfunctional school yeah and it's just like totally goes on like that for years without any sort of local oversight so it's very obvious that the the you know the, the switch that you're talking about is what needs to happen stop telling people they're inadequate because like yeah. how is that ever going to be helpful and actually start doing like soft low level behind the scenes accountability that's actually meaningful and improvement focused well i think i think this is the thing like i mean i i had this experience myself so having sort of been you know having to leave a school um, after an inspection experience and you know you, you're never supposed to discuss the circumstances and stuff <laughs> sort of everyone kind of knows but are you going to touch with your, your union and representatives and these people are amazing so honestly they're like they're absolute lifesavers they pull people out of the hole um of, and, and they say look <laughs> they said to me look you're doing fine at least you can speak <laughs> and and they say look every week we have people every day, pretty much, but certainly every week, we have head teachers exactly the same situation calling us up, and some of them are just like absolutely ruined. They're, they're just at the end, they can't do anything else. They can never work again half the time because they're crushed, absolutely crushed, and they disappeared. No one ever knows where they've gone, and that still happens now. You know, how, can you, how can you have a system that does that to people? Yeah, I know, I know. It's, it's just, it's just profoundly wrong, isn't it? They don't deserve it. They, they don't deserve it. You know, these people have worked hard in tough schools and they get absolutely crushed and, and nobody cares. And Ofsted, and like Amanda Spielman, who I've met and, and I like a bit, she's justifying the system, which crushes people and she does it knowingly. Yeah. And it's, it's outrageous. I mean, I, I, how can we run a system which, which treats people with such contempt? Isn't it shocking? I mean, it makes me angry. I makes me so angry that it happens. I get contacted all the time because people see me as someone who's experienced this and they, they reach out to me all the time. Yeah. And I have to write emails to people saying, 
sometimes it's their, it's their wife or their husband is writing to me saying, you know, I think you're someone who might be able to give us some advice. And you think, God, you poor thing, you know, look, look what they've done to you. Yeah. They don't deserve it. You know, it's like, it's, it's wrong, isn't it? So even if someone's sort of struggling, they, they, don't, they don't deserve to be kind of shamed. And you can tell, like in my voice, it, it affects you. It kind of it affects you forever. So sometimes people recover and they do something different, but I don't think I don't think a healthy system treats people that way. No, no. And I don't I don't think it helps the kids either. I mean, you could say, well, we need good people coming in, but that's rare. It's rare for a school to sort of really sort of shift in that way when new people come in. It doesn't really. They sometimes you get people who are more sort of attuned to that particular culture and they do a slightly more effective job. But at a basic level, I, I mean, I, and I've met some Ofsted people, and I just think, can you look yourselves in the eye and think you're doing the right thing for kids in this country when you're treating adults in your system in this way? Uh, and I don't think they realise sometimes what they're actually doing. When, when you're told that your school's going into being called inadequate, it's like they might, honestly, it's like, it's almost theatrical. They almost might put a black cap on and say, you are being sent down. <laughs> everyone's like in mourning you know it's like yeah oh it is it's very theatrical (laughs) why are we doing this it's uh, until that goes i just think there's so many other things won't shift because people are so scared of that happening to them that they do almost anything even if it's sort of like horribly sort of shoehorning rub you know curriculum into being this very shallow narrow curriculum to avoid any suggestion or i don't know there's there are perverse incentives aren't there so I, I, that's the main thing that needs to go. <laughs> yeah, I agree, and and it so it filters all the way down the system, doesn't it? Like the, it's a, it's a, it seems to be a fear based response to like to to whatever it is to to school improvement. It's like this divide and conquer sort of thing. Like you're the good schools, you're the naughty schools, and yeah. we're sort of somehow going to use that against you. And that fear it filters down. And I remember that that dreadful like flood of adrenaline when Ofsted are in school the, the 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 flood that you get when you hear that we've had the call yeah you know this is like everyone just starts flapping around and just going like this is a horrible feeling and then when the door handle goes during an inspection <laughs> and you're like fuck the hit or like even it's like an outer an outer body and it's just some kid coming in but you like need 5 minutes to sort of calm down yeah and and even when there's one actually in your room that's really surreal because you're like oh my god it's happening this is a, this is the actual thing you've built it up so much that it just like distorts whatever they're seeing is not normal anyway no. um but also like the, the mentality filter down so that sort of naming and shaming thing you know i've heard of schools that do this with kids so that their, their, their attitude to learning scores another thing for which there's scant you know validity um attitude to learning scores not attainment but just like the you know how sort of you know compliant they are essentially um they're named and shamed on in a ladder along the school corridor and it's like you know these essentially the message is like these kids are sort of bad kids and they're holding you down and again you know i mean my goodness that's not okay no i that sort of thing is is, is massively problematic isn't it so i i feel like this sort of school shaming and stuff i is is wrong and you know i i am um, you you've got to be very careful to be selective about whether when, whether you start doing that to the schools you like and the schools you don't like you have to just say no you, i'm not going to publicly talk about schools it's, it's always difficult you never get the full story the school can never write has never really can reply um 
and there's, there's always complexity. I mean, even still now, you, you get fallout from stuff that happened before because people have had a partial story and they've got this received version of it and they think that that's the truth, even though it isn't. But you can never really put that forward. So it's, it's sort of... But of course, there are people, you know, not saying that everyone is good or bad or schools can't fail and they can't be blew out of their depth. And I'd probably say I was out of my depth in, in, in that school. But it's the way it's done. I mean, you have to have a way of people being able to sort of change with dignity. And um, I, I just think that would be possible within a system where you didn't have grades. You just have evaluations and internal processes and then managing the message to parents. This idea that we all deserve to know everything I, I don't. I don't agree with that. I think accountability has many forms, and you don't have to have blow by blows on everything. It's it's just not appropriate. Yeah, yeah, and I, I would extend that to to the way that we assess kids as well. But that that's maybe a separate conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 is there anything um, else in the challenges? I, I think there's a challenge around assessment. So I think I think um, currently our system, you know, you can leave you can leave school with. Um, a load of grade one GCSEs or five of them and or two, and then you go to a college and you do a one subject, level one or two, a BTEC, and and and, and hopefully get onto an apprenticeship and, and get out of that, but or, or get a job. But at the other end, you've got someone doing their four and a half A levels and an EPQ and they're in the orchestra and they go on Duke of Edinburgh. And it's like the 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 the, the chalk and cheese of that is that is again appalling like the children who are already at the struggling end of academic success also get the weakest provision in terms of wraparound opportunity in our system and i just think that's poor as well so i think a kind of national baccalaureate type situation where everybody universally all learners without exception had an entitlement to certain levels of provision up to 18 would be a much better system but currently we have this sort of very deeply embedded sheep and goats effect which not only affects the levels of of a subject range that children can access but also the 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 wraparound because fe colleges are so underfunded it's not even funny it's like they can barely afford to deliver a kind of 18 hour program and then we have to do maths and english reset that that the hours for that come out of their main program i don't think people even realize that it's not extra like so if you need to do a, a an hour you know, three hours a, a week out for maths and English, that's 15 hours left for your core programme. It, it, there's just a poor relation every which way. And it, it, I just, it, that's, that's not right. So I, I feel like that reframing an inclusive qualifications framework. So this would be, this would involve um, not having GCSEs and having something that was, that was assessment right the way through to 18. Or is this alongside GCSEs? Well, this is a good discussion, actually, because at the moment, I mean, we've just launched a consultation. I'm, I'm a trustee of the National Baccalaureate Trust, uh, along with a few other people. Um, and we've just re- re- put a consultation out about this so that we're going to write a report later this year about it. But basically, it's one of the questions we're asking. that There are two two ways to do it. Either you, you just sort of replace everything with a, 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 full, a, a newly constituted National Baccalaureate with new components in it and reconfigure A-levels and GCSEs and, and, and BTECs and other vocational qualifications into a, a new set of things that you all delivered. Or you start with what we've got already and we wrap around the, the baccalaureate and say your GCSEs and your A-levels and your vocational qualifications contribute towards the baccalaureate. And 
and then you would perhaps need to do slightly fewer GCSEs because each one of them on its own doesn't matter too much. It's about the whole totality. So there are different ways of doing it and different schools of thought about whether you remove GCSEs or just phase them out or just do fewer of them. But basically, you're, we're talking about reshifting re from the, the, the main heavy line of, of, of accountability and target um, sort of terminal qualifications to 18 for everybody rather than 16. And then you'll, you'll, you have a kind of transcript which says, you know, when, when I'm 18, I have a transcript which says, these are my high-level qualifications. These are what I finished when I was 16. This is my personal development program. This was the project that I did. And it's got this holistic feel about it, all, all on an electronic transcript. And everyone would just be saying, your CV would be like, here's, here's the QR code for my transcript. <laughs> and there you go. And then you open it up and go, oh, wow, look at what you did at school. And it's got all your components in there and it adds up to something. Mm. And there are other debates. There are other debates to have about whether that's got a point system or just the things stand for themselves. So I, I think this, that that's an exciting thing to look at. Um, and it's well within the, the, the grasp of the technology at the moment to have a national transcript for everybody, which is then passports for 11 to 16 schools. They passport students through into FE and sixth form colleges, and the same process continues. And, and to me, that's the way the way we should be going. And there's quite a lot of people who agree with that. Yeah, well, there's obviously there's this there's this group that's been uh, very active recently, the Rethinking Assessment Group, who are looking at you know th this question. So 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 let's just go back a step and just start, like so so you're talking about this thing a national baccalaureate, and I know that you've um you've uh, been t been working on this for quite some time. What is a baccalaureate for anyone who like I, I just looked it up because I've heard of the international baccalaureate. And I know that you know the 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 so-called EBAC, the English Baccalaureate, which is was essentially you know a way of saying that there's five academic subjects. So it's like English, math, science, a language, and a humanity. I just looked it up, and it seems to be a French word. It says a baccalaureate is an exam in several subjects taken in the last year of school around the age of eighteen in France and some other countries. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So about, about... why why is it called that? A baccalaureate really comes really from the international baccalaureate. It basically means a, a terminal qualification, which is more than the sum of its parts. So it, it, the, all the components add up to one whole. And so, um, and then it's a question of what goes into it. So in the international baccalaureate, it includes at the diploma level, it includes six subjects. It includes a theory of knowledge uh, assessment, an extended essay, creativity, action and service, as it's a whole personal development program. And it's all wrapped up through linked concepts like international mindedness and it's got a whole philosophy so the whole thing if you pass the ib you've got some subcomponents which have scores and, and and so on but you've got things like the the cas program which has no score it's just something you've finished and it's completed and it has to be a certain volume and so it's a wraparound it's a whole thing it's i think it's exceptional i think it's like the gold standard qualification so the case is what could you have that for everybody well yeah you could because but you could have it at entry level, foundation, intermediate, and higher. You wouldn't have to have it just only at advanced level. We've got, you know, could you broaden up the types of subjects? So when I say it's, it's an, in, in a French baccalaureate, it's basically a series of exams they take towards their back. Now, the EBAC in England is a, it's a good joke. One reason I'm so determined to call it the baccalaureate is the EBAC is a, an absolute embarrassment of an idea that you've got this collection of five traditional subject areas at key stage four is called a baccalaureate where it doesn't even 
add up to anything. There's no baccalaureate as such. The children don't get anything. It's just uh, uh, an accountability tick. Like, have they done maths, English, science, uh, a language, and, and and humanities? They don't even have to do a language and humanities. It's just one of the two. It's it's bizarre that it, that's a thing. I suppose just Michael Gove or someone decided to call it the EBAC, but that was probably just in some random moment. It's not a baccalaureate. So a baccalaureate is much bigger than that, and it includes a, rep- a record of all the things you've achieved. So that's what we're after. You know, I think a, nas- a national baccalaureate for England would be amazing. Every, every student all the way through school would be saying, when what, how, what am I going to do to complete my back? Well, I'm going to select some units of this. I'm going to do some units of that. I'm going to do some hires here. My personal project would be this. To get my personal development program, I'm going to do, I've got to do some sport. I've got to do something creative. And it's like, yeah, that's great. That's what a, that's what a curriculum should be like. And then everyone can do that in lots of different ways. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, with, yeah, I agree that EBAC is is an abomination, and 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 um, it it seems like it was maybe a policy idea to move kids away from choosing arts subjects because that certainly seems to be what happened after the EBAC was introduced. Like, like, like lots of schools so they have even stopped doing like drama and you know design technology and so on, and that they're just like focusing very heavily. On a on a narrower band of like you say those like traditional academic subjects, and it seems like that is part of the thinking. Like that, like Gavin Williamson was there was a, a thing on Conservative Home this week. He said recently something like um, that it's really good that that like STEM subjects that there's been an uptake in STEM subjects because so many people have got these have got dead end degrees and that they're saddled with debt for, for, for getting dead end degrees. It seems like the education secretary isn't a fan of, of people becoming educated in anything other than, than science and technology and engineering, which is an interesting position for him to take. So it does seem like there's this like fetishization of science and, and technology, you know, the sort of the Dominic Cummings agenda uh, at the expense of what's seen as sort of, you know, like, I don't know, like frivolous somehow, like creative creative uh, design type stuff is seen as somehow less important. I think there's lots of things here. I mean, I could talk about this for endlessly, but I'm, I think there are a number of competing issues. And one of, the, one of them is that, you know, within that, you do have this problem that art subjects, for example, or any, anything is only given a value if you take a qualification in it. And that's one of the fundamental problems. So with, with, a, with an overarching baccalaureate, It'd be, it'd be perfectly valid for someone to sort of be in the orchestra and, and engage in music as a performer and a composer without having to take an exam. So if that's part of their curriculum experience and it's given credit because it's, it contributes towards their back, that has value. doesn't mean it's less valuable because they haven't taken a, got a qualification in it because it all contributes to the same. And also you've got this slightly, I just think it's one of those weird paradoxes of the EBAC fans, which is that you've got children who are in year eight in some schools perfectly perfectly allowed to, to stop to start GCSEs in year nine and so they stopped doing history in year eight and they proudly are doing the EBAC because they're doing maybe French and geography in year in year nine ten eleven but this they're not doing any history at all so you can say history really matters history really matters everybody should learn history it's a proper subject but actually you don't have to do it <laughs> you can finish it in year eight. So I, I think that's weird. You, you kind of your cake and eat it. History and geography aren't just equal kind of alternatives. They're totally different subjects. So it's, for me, it's, it's just a total blind alley of argument that history really matters unless you decide not to do it. 
Yeah. So you can't resolve that. It's a, it's a forever paradox, the idea that you can pick one of the two. If history matters that much, why should why doesn't everybody have to do some history? Why do they have to stop? So one of the feel, things I feel with, with um, like one of the advantages you have in, say, an American system is that you, 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 every year you select credits that you study. So you might do a unit on um, contemporary you know, 20th century history or something. And the next year, do a, history, a unit on sustainability or something like that. And it's part of your whole baccalaureate. But you don't have to take some final terminal exam in each of them. You just are gradually increasing your knowledge. So you've done some history and some geography, maybe a slightly less of each one. And I think that type of flexibility is good. Uh, at the moment, we have a narrowing effect because we have to make choices. And so you do have some children now, I've got some curricular models on my blog that I've collected where the one school model I have, they, they take their GCSEs for year nine and in their key stage three, they do an hour and a half a week of history. So that's like, whereas in another school, they do three hours, they, they, they do two hours a week for three years. So they, when you add that up, that's actually a double the amount of time for history. And then even if even if you drop the subject, so that's a massive range in the country where you've got literally some children who don't take history GCSE have got half the curriculum time at secondary school than other children. It's that, that's a that's a perverse consequence of us having this need for everything to be about qualifications at sixteen. It doesn't need to be that. And then arts definitely squeezed. My art, my daughter did drama and art GCSE, both of them. They were probably the most her two, two of her most demanding GCSEs. <laughs> she loved them, and they were demand, but they were hard work. Wow, yeah, yeah, nothing soft about them at all. And so it's so rare now to find a model where you could do two arts GCSEs. Never mind everyone doing one. That's very rare. Yeah, yeah. My son had to choose one. Um, yeah, and so so to come back to the to the national baccalaureate. You say that it's like it's something where all of these different strands add up to to one whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. Is there like an overall grade that's attached to this one thing? Do, is there like an overall? For, I don't know if this is the case for the IB. Yeah, do you get is. like one overall grade for an IB? And would this be the case with the NAT back as well? Well, that's the thing that we're asking people's view at the moment. I mean, from the survey, I've got a, I've made a poll and people are responding. So far, it's a bit fifty fifty. Some people literally, it's literally half and half. Um, so it, this is a policy that's up for discussion. So in the IB, you get a total of points is out of 45. And so you might say my IB score is 36, which is quite high. Then the top, the, the very highest attainers get 40 something. Um, I think 23 is the minimum to sort of pass below that. You have to get that you kind of call it that you don't get the full diploma. So you, there is a total score for some, some situations, the total score tells you something. But within that, you also know that the scores I got for my three hires or my standards or whatever. So you can actually, but so you don't necessarily need the score. My, my, my preference would be that you pass the baccalaureate, say, I've completed, the language would be, I've completed the baccalaureate. And yes, I've finished all the components. And then open up my portfolio. What does it show inside? Well, it shows that I got some sub scores. I got this qualification and that one. I did my such and such and such award in arts and I got this community leadership um, award or whatever and i've done some sub components which are accredited and some not accredited this is my personal development program signed off by my college and it's like a mixture of assessed elements and non-assessed elements 
adding up to completing the baccalaureate, which meets the standard. Some people say that in each of those points should be given a certain credit score and it adds up to a total score. The risk there is you end up with sort of people sort of, again, accountability measures based around number of children getting above a certain credit score. So there are different debates to be had about that. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a fascinating thing. So so again, it's, I mean, is there anywhere that, that, can we put a link to this consultation in the show notes if people want to get yeah, involved I'll, I'll in send, this? I'll, in, definitely, I'll send it to you. Um, I mean, we, we just, we had a, literally a webinar last week, just last week, where people, you know, a number of people joined us or we explained it, and we've got a number of partners. So, you know, all, all the key, like, you know, teaching unions, official bodies, exam boards, um, are aware of it and we're hoping that they they've got several months to respond to our consultation and then we'll come up come up with a set of proposals which we say this is what we think should happen and every time i've presented it, it it's people understand the logic of it i think what's happened though in the last few years is that we just couldn't get any traction any traction because that the reforms that came through in 2014-15 around curriculum and uh, were so overwhelming everyone was just totally saturated with rolling out the new gcse's the new a levels um and there's just enough to do, else to worry about. So this was this has always felt like a, a bridge too far. But but now, now I feel the time is people are much more interested in people now. I've had a couple of years of the full weight of Year Eleven GCSEs, and it's just insane. I mean, you do not need three exams in history, <laughs> or all in May. You know, to it, it's just silly. It, and, and even people who are strong exam advocates like me, I think exams are really important in the system. I still think there are too many. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on that, we agree for sure. Um, all right. Well, um, I've got an eye on the clock. We're, we're coming up to three hours here, which is probably <laughs> <laughs> probably as much as, as, as our listeners uh, can, can take, as, especially and, and yourself, given that, um, you know, you had such an early start today. So um, let, let's wrap this up for now. Um, I think it's possible. I know we, we've, we've talked about possibly having a conversation about uh, there's an aspect of of um, the, the trad prog debate, which I think that we might pick up and I might publish that as an addendum to this episode, uh, a conversation that we might pick up with Adam Boxer in a few days. Um, but we won't go into that right now. Um, unless there's anything else that you would like to add, like, is there anything that you would like to ask of our listeners? I mean, we've, we've you know, we can share with them links to the Natback and to, to EduGive. Is there anything else that you would like to, to um, say as a parting comment? No, I mean, I just think if you're listening to this, it's probably because you're someone who's engaged in um, thinking about education in quite a deep way. And if you've got this far to the end, then you're absolutely hardcore. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so I just say thank you for listening. But but mainly, I just think to keep celebrating the idea that the profession is on the way up. And I, I think we should talk the profession up. I feel like there's a lot of great things happening out there. And um, it's really exciting to be part of that. And talk up the profession you know it's a great it's a great time to be a teacher and i really really believe that and the more people who say that the better i uh, yeah it, i agree it does feel like a really exciting time like, like one of the first things that i ever wrote about education was about the need to free education policy from from political endless political tinkering and from having it tied to like the short-term electoral cycle and i can remember sort of talking to people around that time and 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 a, a fairly strong counter argument is that 
you know, like schools and te the teaching profession didn't really sort of have its house in order, you know, 10 years ago. Like there was quite a lot of sort of flaky practice going on and people weren't particularly research engaged. And it really feels like the, the, the profession has been growing in stature through this this period of time that you've been describing and all these sort of robust conversations and the, the abundance of, of books that are being published by frontline teachers as well as people around the outsides. Um, it does feel like a time when when we are, you know, stronger than ever before as a profession um, and and therefore in a stronger position to to start to make the case that actually we can start to look at quite the question of how we can figure out some sort of longer term policy framework that isn't just you know endless tinkering because it's that's what's so sort of dis disappointing isn't it when like mm. it's like the endless change is is just that was another th i think the, the the piece that i wrote about that that was like the, the piece that i wrote it was one of those pieces in the guardian the secret teacher and it started the only constant is constant change and that's sort of what it feels like you just sort of get used to some new curriculum some new assessment framework some new ofsted framework whatever it is and then it just all changes again and you never get to actually sort of just stop adapting to this never ending cascade of policy initiatives. Mm. And it's exhausting and, and some really good ideas get thrown out um, along the way. And it just seems like we need to figure out how we can transition to, uh, you know, another way of another way of organizing policy and for teachers to, for teachers voices to be much more valued in that process and so it feels like we're we're closer to that than we don't certainly than we were 10 years ago yeah absolutely and you know teachers and leaders i feel if we could have got our act together we could probably like take take a few institutions you know down and just say that we don't we're just not standing for that anymore it's just not how we do things uh, so i feel like you know that's, the, that's there for the taking i mean so reforming accountability, having a baccalaureate, um, all these sorts of things. I, I just think there's a, a future education system which is even better than it is now. But, but I feel the profession is going to make that come about, not policymakers probably. Mm, yes, yeah. Actually, can I, as, as a final, as a parting question, I saw a tweet that you posted earlier this week, which got quite a lot of traction. And I don't know if it was respond if it was in response to. So there was. I saw a piece. Uh, yesterday by by um it was in the test and it was about kevin collins who's the, the catch-up czar um which is, is a, a mantle that you wouldn't want to no. it's interesting why, why he took that on and and i don't think that this is necessarily his central policy agenda but somebody had asked the question should we have extended school days and his answer was if we're going to do that then they need to be compulsory so of course the headline is like we should have compulsory longer days uh, to 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 have some sort of a catch up, and so you you had an alternative vision for a recovery curriculum or a recovery yeah, did, you yeah. know a, approach. Yeah, basically, I mean, I, I just think that there's so much lost energy in setting up these extra things that actually the main thing is there's so much mileage, there's so much slack, if you like, in just implementing the curriculum we've already designed. Probably a lot of work's going in and just really make, hit that home and teach really well to hit home with all the children learning what you're already doing really well. And then if there's any extra time, just focus on using that time to plan doing that really well. And then, you know, using things like lots of reading and homework. So if you children that need sort of additional stuff, you've got homework and reading. And then that's it. You know, it's not a some giant catastrophe. The kids... It, 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 we don't need to do some sort of lurch into some extra sort of bolt-on thing. I just think that's a, a total misdirect. 
Yeah, yeah. It's like shiny new thing syndrome, isn't it? Yeah. People sort of like the idea of doing new things and that we need to respond to COVID with some shiny new thing. And so you're sort of saying, let's just actually, you know, double down, consolidate what yeah. we're already doing really well and just make sure that we nail it, you know. Totally. Nail it. I mean, you know, it's not like... And also, spend the, if there's time to be found, well, teachers are already gasping for time to 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 think about the curriculum and that that time is well spent so i i think the idea that you have even more lessons to prepare or i, I don't even even kevin kevin was it, it, he was saying that people should be paid so like I, I, he's not saying that existing teachers should just do more hours which is probably what michael wilshire would say because you know he doesn't respect people's working life no but i, I it's it's yeah, so I, I just think, and I do think that what most people are saying is that's one of the few tweets that, of mine which sort of gets loads of loads of likes is because people say that's kind of what we're doing anyway. It's like, yeah, that's what we're doing, uh, and it's it's what we're focusing on. So I, I, I just think that in a, de facto, that's what people are going to be doing. Of course, if they get some extra money and you have to spend it on certain things, I probably have to spend it on that, but um, like abacuses or whatever. <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, reckon Ricks, isn't that incredible? Uh, anyway, yeah, the, the crazy system. Yes. All right. Well, thank you again for taking all this time. I really appreciate it. Uh, I hope you get to catch up on your your missing sleep soon. I think you're surviving the virtual jet lag admirably, far far better than I certainly would be able to. So, thank you again, and uh, we will speak again soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Time is a measure of change. Time is a measure of change